Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. It's our birthday. Yes, it was a, uh, a whole year ago that we just finished our documentary, Fire and Ice. And I'll be talking a little bit about Fire and Ice in my little session today where we're talking about climate change. And I said to John, you know what, John, we really ought to sit down and do a live broadcast talking about climate change and having a bit of a chat. You know, it's what everybody's doing nowadays with COVID and having to have everything on the internet, right? And so we uh, we played around a bit. We had a very, very... Um, prehistoric uh, form of technology back then trying to put stuff out because neither myself nor John really knew what we were doing so I had to fully rely on my wife to get everything out Uh, but we did it we managed it and here we are a year later with uh, you know so much progress and of course most of it thanks to Sam and his uh, his help as well but we do have as you can see a few decorations Sam's got some decorations and we have a birthday cake as well Look at that. Now, unfortunately, you know, I would share this around with everybody, but this is the downside of uh, virtual technology. Um, I will have to eat this all by myself. So uh, never mind. But happy birthday to all of us. Thank you to all of our supporters who have watching, been watching us after, uh, you know, a year. And our viewership is growing and growing and growing. So, yeah, praise the Lord. Keep us in prayer. Keep supporting us. And uh, hopefully we will be here for many more years to come. I'm going to blow this out before it becomes a fire hazard. There we go. Great stuff. All right. Um, What we're going to be doing for our um, birthday celebration creation conversations is we're going to be going through three main topics. Uh, These three topics are our most popular topics from the past year. And even though we've obviously done these topics before, we're not going to be repeating ourselves. We're actually going to be going into some different detail. We're going to be going a little bit deeper. We're going to be looking at some really exciting stuff. And of course, uh, you know, there will be some overlap, but that's fine. You'll still be able to enjoy us. Remember, keep your questions coming in. If uh, we don't use your questions on this broadcast, we will use them on another broadcast or indeed our special Q&A broadcast. So keep those questions coming in. We will get round to them eventually. But uh, let's start with what we always start with. Let's start off with a ministry update. So uh, John, let's go straight over to you. I'll get your PowerPoint up on the slide because I understand it's been a little bit wet where you are. Wet. My backyard's like dirt soup at the present time. <laughs> so uh, it, it's been really, really wet until yesterday when it was bone dry just about 20 hours after the government warned everybody to stay home don't go out it was going to be absolutely catastrophic weather and it was a beautiful day so just shows you man's weather forecast have nothing in comparison with god's ability to control the weather in fact i suspect the lord was up there saying i'll show them they have no idea where the wind comes from or where it goes to No, I didn't invent that thought. You'll find it comes from Jesus Christ. He said that way back, and you can read it in your Bible. You you can see up on the screen a picture of Jurassic Ark entryway. Now, the reason for that is that back in 2011, our property, our park, our adventure land, our fossil site was absolutely destroyed by a flood. 
Now, I love the Bible because it's a good place to learn from what's happened in the past or even what will happen in the future. You see, one of the core, one of the reasons for Jurassic Ark is to teach people that the fear of the Lord, the God, Jehovah, who created the Jesus Christ, who is the creator, the fear of this Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the end of it. It's just the start. So when we looked at the 2011 flood at the start of the year, there was our lovely exposed first section of fossil site. Great stuff. I tell you what, we used to have lots of people come, families, etc. They would dig out logs and we would teach them all about fossils and about Noah's flood. We called it a flood deposit until it really was. You <laughs> see, in the start of that year, 2011, the weather fell apart, or the nice weather of Queensland, and moving down the coast was catastrophic weather. By the time it got to Gympie, where Jurassic Ark is, it breached our wall there and began to fill up the park. That's not the end, that's just the start. By the time we got to the end, there is what was, well, there wasn't much of it left. It's simply under water. And then the water began to run away. And you learn one thing, the erosive power of water is not due to it pushing, it's due to it sucking. You know, like when you shoot those arrows with a rubber tip and you sort of lick the rubber tip and it vacuums onto the wall and, and the packet that you bought it in said, don't rip this off the wall because if you do, you find the suction power of water will take the paint off the wall and mum and dad won't be very happy. There's the start of the erosion. There's what it was like a day or two later. The erosion had catastrophic to destroyed things. The entry access path for wheelchairs really was torn apart. And we're on the top of a hill. Uh, yes, you heard me right. We're on the top of a hill. This, this erosion here, a new spring appeared we'd never seen before. The ground was saturated. It took vast amounts of money. Praise the Lord for donations that, I mean, we really went through about 100,000 replacing pipes, replacing everything, but it wasn't until 2021 we did something about the fossil site. You may remember last year we had a, a cover blown away, you know, just the cheap sort of $1,000 uh, canvas covers, and we decided to build strong. But it was right in the middle of a drought. So our building is going up right beside our dam, and we ask people to pray for rain. We are convinced the Bible's accurate when it says God sends the rain and God sends the drought. We use the rain, as we've showed you before, for pumping onto our living fossil gardens, our specialized tree fern gardens, for making our orchids look absolutely beautiful. Again, a reminder, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. If you can get to Australia, and hopefully that won't be too far down the line for most of you, many of the restrictions, the COVID type restrictions are being slowly relaxed. Come and visit us. It's a beautiful place. But it's also a place where we teach people that. We make no apologies. We are Christians. If you want to bring your school here, if you want to bring your group here, your church, you will get to learn that, that we trust in the Lord and we want you to trust in the Lord with all your heart and to not depend on your own understanding. But look at verse 6. The writer of Proverbs says, in everything you do, in whatever you're thinking, acknowledge him and then he will direct your paths. So we long ago became convinced that it is not only God who sends the rain, it is God who sends the drought. And you are to take advantage of both of them. Oh, we're on the way to running out of water. What do we do? 
we bring in the diggers. And yes, thank you to all of you who make donations to Jurassic Art. We decided to double the size of the dam. Now, the importance of that, if you double the size of a dam, think of it in terms of volume. Once times once times one is one. That would just be cleaning the dam out. Two times two times two is eight. If you simply double the size of the dam, you increase the water holding capacity eight times. And look, we even put in a new berm wall or a levee, as they call it, particularly in the USA. And we took particular notice. You'll see my arrow. That tells you where the flood level was in 2011. You see the first of the steel buildings behind me on the right there? Well, we built the levee. We built it to the ordinary 2011 flood level height, which is higher than it's been there before. And then we added half a metre or 18 inches. Ah, by the time we spent $40,000, we had a nice high wall and we had a lovely strong building. 40,000, yes, this is not cheap. Thanks to those who donated all of this, wonderful. And then we remembered one thing. In 2 Kings, and I shared this with you once before, the Bible says the Israelites were going through the desert and they run out of water. They hadn't planned well. They were on their way to attack another king. And God said, just dig some ditches and it's no big thing for me to send water even without rain. Day one, the ground was parched. Day one, there was no water anywhere. See our dam at the top? Absolutely bone dry. See our dam at the bottom? One day later, absolutely full. You see at Jurassic Ark and on this program and with the work Joseph is doing and Sam and Diane, we teach you one thing. This Jesus never changes. This creator stamped his nature on creation and that's why he doesn't believe in evolution. Evolution is where everything changes. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Learning from this, uh, $60,000 later. So thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you who donate all around the globe. Continue to do it. We have young men, we're training. Meet uh, Cain. Cain comes and helps us excavate. He's a young geology student. Pray for this. We'll get more of them. But start 2022, and that's what happened. Yep, just a week ago. That's what the entry road to Jurassic Ark looked like. Oh, if you want to get closer to where you enter the property, look what it looked like. That was You couldn't drive. You couldn't even fly. It was all wet. You had to paddle in. Of course, it's a lot of fun. Um particularly when there's no savage current or anything. But notice one thing, there is our fossil site. Notice on the right-hand side, I've got the levee pointed out in yellow arrow, 2022. Our levee has kept our fossil site absolutely bone dry, despite the fact that in 2022, can you see the red mark up our levee? That's where the water went to just under the top of the levee we'd built. Wonderful. Oh, remember the point that Jesus Christ tells you, seek him for wisdom. And if you use his wisdom and say, we learned a hard lesson back in 2011, it cost a fortune to repair. We don't want that to happen. What can we do, Lord? Build the walls higher. So we did. Now, can I encourage you? The God of the Bible is the God who promises something present future tense. Whatever you ask, present. Whatever you ask, future. In my name, by the way, that's like the name you put on, remember the old-fashioned checks? 
and where you'd sign a name, if the signature was false, you didn't cash it in. But whatever you ask in Jesus' sign name, then he will do it that his Father will be glorified. We ask for wisdom. You can ask for wisdom, provided you do it for Jesus' sake in Jesus' name. And you will find that he answers it, that the Father will be glorified. So again, come and visit us at Jurassic Ark. Everything is luxuriously green at the moment. It's just beautiful. The orchids are blooming. The flowers are out. The rain is finished. And uh, I'll tell you what, we're open for visitors. So support it by creationresearch.net. And I'd encourage you, just keep that in mind. All right, Joe, back to you. Great stuff. Thanks for that, John. Well, here in the UK, things have been fairly busy and I've been fairly preoccupied with research and sorting stuff out. But one thing that's going to come out next week is our tickets. Will Lord Willing go live for our big creation research retreat here in the UK? We're one of the first countries in the world to sort of fully open up, so to speak. Um with no restrictions or anything at all, really. So we've kind of gone right back to what you would call pre-COVID in terms of uh, legal requirements and stuff like that, which is quite good. And we are having ourselves a creation research retreat. This is going to be a retreat like none other. Not only is it going to be your standard conference with, you know, seminars and stuff like that, we're going to be uh, staying down on the south coast on a wonderful campsite down near Dorset. We're going to have it all set up so that we can have workshops and it's going to be featured around fossils. So you can actually come out every day and go and find fossils, dig up fossils, explore fossils, come back. We work through those fossils. We teach you how to clean them and study them. And we have workshops around archaeology and geology and all this kind of exciting stuff. And then uh, the seminars in the evening. So a really exciting retreat and devotions in the morning and everything else. So uh, do uh, keep an eye out for that. Tickets will, Lord willing, go up next week and we'll be able to move forward with getting all those plans into action. So exciting stuff, but let's move on to our fossil museum feature this week. Um, John, I pulled this one out especially for, for you because it's from your neck of the woods. I mean, just get a load of the colours on that beautiful, beautiful fossil slab. Now, these are all leaves, is that right, John? That's correct. They're glossopterous largely. Sometimes mm -hmm. you find some gangemopterous. But uh, they're from a site just over the border in New South Wales. And I love the colours, don't you, Joseph? They're absolutely mm. spectacular. Now, this is one that's gone all the way across the world from Australia. But one thing, John, that you see, you know, whenever you see these in a book or whenever you see these, you know, for sale online, the, the one thing you keep seeing is these fossils prove continental drift. Now, a question for you how do they prove continental drift if they do it indeed at all? And uh, if not, what's really going on with these with these fossils? Because, I mean, they, they come from a long way away in Australia. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, first of all, I better explain their colour because they are so beautiful. Mm. We have got hundreds of these in our collection. There's a, a quarry uh, at a place called Dunidoo. And it's interesting because the, the, the rock is brick. There's been a fire through a clay section there uh, related to coal and the uh, rock has gone, well, that's brick colour. And so these fossils are actually in brick. Now, what's interesting, they're called glossopterous because they look like your tongue, right? You know, your tongue, glossa, uh, as in, in the Bible, as in glossolalia, as in speaking in tongues. Okay, mm -hmm. so these are glossopterous by and large. And what you'll find is that they are associated with the same sort of fossils 
found in a place in India. Now think backwards, the continental drift story, all the continents were together. Then somehow or other, they split up. Um, now this is not a new thought. You'll find it in Francis Bacon, 1601. You'll find it in the uh, writings all the way from 1600s to the late 1800s, but it was always associated with Noah's flood. What caused the continents to split up? Answer, the fountains of the deep broke open and they were splitting apart. But then evolution comes along and that's dumped. So it disappeared for a while until it reappeared under the heading of continental drifts. So over millions of years, India had split off from Australia until, of course, it's going the other way. Now, India is supposed to be uh, going to be banged into by Australia uh, again. So all sorts of interesting thoughts now called continental drift and involving millions of years. What have these fossils got to do with it? Well, when you go around the world, like I've done for so many decades, you'll find fossils like this in India. No, not the pretty red bricks like we've got here in Australia. You'll find it just in grey shales. By the way, grey shales is what we chop up and we mix with a bit of iron if you want red bricks, and then you've got to cook it. Okay, so in India, when they first noticed, hey, they've got Glossopteris in the rocks in India. We've got Glossopteris in Australia. We've got similar vegetation in South Africa. They must have all been in one place. And the name of the place? They called it Gondwana land. And it's mm -hmm. part of one of the series where continents come together and separate, come together. And so you have different amalgamations over the years. Why Gondwana land? Because these fossils in India, in India are found in the kingdom of the Gwans. Yes, I'm not making that up. There really was a Gwan kingdom in India. So you'll find that Gondwana land is this location uh, of the, the Gond people, the kingdom there, and you find the fossils there, you find them here, and the logic is if you find the same things dead together, um, they must have lived together. If you find them dead separately, but they're the same fossils, then they must have been joined together by the same climate, e.g. they must have been in close approximation. Now, it doesn't take too many smart detectives to realise the only observation here is that you have the same fossils in India as you have in Australia. Everything after that is interpretation based on interpretation. So don't fall too much in love with continental drift. You might find it drifts out from under you sooner or later when someone finds a totally different fossil mixed in with the rocks in India or South Africa or Australia. So that, that's probably an up-to-date view on our beautiful fossils from Dunedoo, if you've never heard of Dunedoo, you probably never will again. It's a tiny little place in New South Wales, but it is famous, uh, well, famous amongst people like myself for these beautiful... I've fossils. actually been to Dunedoo, so it does exist. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Diane, for that confirmation. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, there's apparently a whistling noise going on during the broadcast. Sam, have you got any ideas? I don't know if it's an echo or something like that. It sounds like a bird to me. <laughs> Oh, okay. It's one of these. One of these. Got to be one of these Australian birds. If it is a bird, yeah. Because it's no birds about in the middle of the night here. Um, if it's uh, well, it is early it, morning over here, Joseph. So yeah. the birds are yes. waking up. The birds yeah. are waking up. That's that should be fine. There's nothing we can do about birds then. Um, all right. Let's move on to the main uh, subject then, or the main subjects of tonight. We're dealing with three ones. Remember, we're dealing with our most uh, popular topics that we've dealt with. 
to begin, I'm going to deal with the issue of climate change. Then we're going to go over to John, who's going to deal with the issue of the giants and the Nephilim. And then we'll be looking at uh, things like race and skin color from Diane. And then we're going to finish up, if we have time, with a sort of a, a, a brief uh, comment, if you like, sort of a back and forth for me and John discussing uh, a few things like the sort of the politics of race and racism and slavery and stuff like that so it should be fun it should be controversial it should be uh uh you know, popular because we're dealing with our most popular topics and having a a slightly different angle on them than the ones we did last time so let's dive straight in let's see if i can get my climate change slides up on the screen hopefully you can all see them there and you also see our website a reminder everybody here probably knows this all uh, quite well by now but you can go and check out creationresearch.net you can check out the creation research center which is our museum center here in the uk uh, and find out the things that we're talking about tonight uh, as well as a lot more in depth you'll also see in the description of this video we went above and beyond this time putting in lots and lots of links lots of links to things that you can watch not just for free but also on our streaming service things like the origin of the races um things like climate change fire and ice our brand new documentary uh stuff like that things you can read on our ask john mckay sites and research reports so go and check out all the links in the description below and check out these websites as we go all right our theme really for the whole of tonight actually uh is this one here philippians 2 5 let this mind be in you that is also in christ You'll find when you're dealing with these controversial topics, when you're dealing with these topics which are big in the world today, you need to make sure that you have Christ's mind in you, not the mind of the world, not the mind of uh, you know people who think in an anti-biblical way. You need to make sure that you have Christ's mind in you. So making sure we're taking a purely biblical perspective, let's move forward and have a look at climate change. Well, Climate change was in the news massively over the past year, especially with uh, uh, COP26 happening and so on and so forth. It was sort of COVID and then COP26, our climate summit. But recently, this is what's been in the news. Ukraine invasion. Will Putin start a nuclear war? He put his nuclear warheads on high alert a few days ago. And this is really what's been taking up most of the newspaper spaces. Will this end up in a nuclear war? Now, what's interesting, if you dig deep enough, is that a few years ago, the Huffington Post put out this article. Could a small nuclear war reverse global warming? Uh, global warming always seems to fit itself in every single <laughs> political or uh, you know, popular topic of the day. But look what they're saying here. Nuclear war's a bad thing, right? Well, no, they're saying they're suggesting that actually a nuclear winter could be the thing which actually saves the planet ah but you've got to remember we're coming here from a secular perspective we're coming here from the perspective of mankind is bad we've you know destroyed the planet we have the power to save the planet and you find even people like david attenborough say the only way we're really going to save the planet is by destroying mankind actually curbing the population end up doing stuff so we're maintaining a population and not only would a nuclear war definitely <laughs> cut the population down they also argue that well a nuclear winter could actually 
do be the thing which saves the planet from global warming. So global warming fits into every kind of, you know, modern or popular topic, including nuclear wars. So there we go. All right, let's get back to the Bible. IQ test. What do the following have in common? Noah at the age of 602, Abraham when he went to Egypt, Joseph at age 39, Jacob at age 130, and Moses at age 80. Now, some of you will have seen myself or John actually uh, talk about this before. But we keep talking about it, and we keep talking about it because it gets you back to not only a biblical perspective, but also an historical perspective of climate change. Yes, all these different times of scripture have something to do with climate change. Let's work through them. Noah, uh, at the end of the flood, God promises Noah that for as long as the earth shall remain, in Genesis 8.22, there will be day, there will be night, there will be cold, there will be heat, there will be winter, and there will be summer until the world ends. Now, you'll find no reference to the world being destroyed in a massive global warming event. You don't get that until the book of Revelation when the earth actually burns up. But the promise that God gave Noah back at the end of the flood in Genesis chapter 22 is that earth's climate is going to be different to what you've experienced before. I mean, think about it. When Adam and Eve were created, they were walking around the garden naked and they didn't freeze to death at night, and they didn't burn to death in the day. It was a very good world, and that includes the climate. Now God has promised Noah, I've destroyed the world, I've saved you, go out and repopulate the world, go out and you know fill the world, but there's going to be changes in climate. From now on, there's going to be cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night. There's going to be climate change. Move forward to the time of Abram. And there was a famine in the land, says Genesis chapter 12. And Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. There was a drought. Now, not only can you find evidence of this, obviously it's recorded in scripture, but you can find evidence of this in the real world as well. Corresponding with the 4.2 to 3.9 uh, BP, that's before present, so that's around 2200 to 1900 BC, abrupt climate changes to a more arid climate has been recorded, uh, says this technical journal here. Uh, in Discover magazine, uh, Professor Harvey Weiss, beginning around 4,200 before present, sudden demise of civilizations including Mesopotamia, Canaan, and other Middle Eastern regions. You see, what the evidence says is that soon after Noah's flood, you had a wonderful environment to grow stuff in. It was beautiful. It was tropical all over the world, including in places like Iceland, including in places like the Sahara Desert. Two extremes today. Very, very cold in Iceland, very, very hot in the Sahara Desert, but there's evidence that soon after Noah's flood, there were warm and there were tropical and things grow in the Sahara and things grew plentiful in Iceland. We'll talk about more of that later. But around 4,200 years before present, a sudden demise in civilizations all over the world, particularly in the Middle Eastern regions, and you have this drought. Um, there's the Middle Eastern regions. I mean, it's pretty sandy and dry today. But they've said that this is now confirmed by sediment from the Gulf of Oman, uh, from places near Syria and Turkey. And it's not only in the physical archaeological evidence, it's also in the literature of the time. 
It matches up with scripture. Large fields and acres produce no grain. The flooded fields produce no fish. The watered gardens produce no honey and wine. The heavy clouds did not rain. On its plains where grew fine plants, lamentation reads, now grows as the curse of Akkad in 2100 uh, BC. Hmm. Interesting. Evidence from history, evidence from archaeology, climate change. It's now clear that after a period of quite a humid and warm climate, that participate, uh, precipitation diminished greatly after 4,200 years in a littoral zone of the Middle East or the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, it's evidence in history. It's evidence in archaeology. Okay, so what about when Abraham went to Egypt? Well, that was the drought. What about Joseph at age 39 when he was in Egypt and Jacob at age 130? It was droughts again. I mean, you remember where Joseph was sent to Egypt, seven years of plenty, seven years of drought. And Jacob came to Egypt. Well, he came to Egypt himself because he'd found his son there, but he initially sent his other sons to Egypt because of a drought. Abraham, when he went to Egypt, there was a drought. He then left and went back to the promised land, back to the land of uh, Canaan, and it was fine. It was sheep. It was happy to live in, and then a drought came, and Joseph was there in Egypt. God had specifically sent him there, as Joseph even said himself, to preserve and save the children of Israel. And Jacob then went there during the time of the drought. Um, okay, second thought here. Why Egypt? Why does Egypt feature so heavily throughout um, all, of the, all of Scripture, particularly in this beginning part? Well, a little... Hint, perhaps, is from Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, and also Hosea 11. Out of Egypt I called my son. God had a plan for Egypt, and if you were listening to our uh, our broadcast right, a couple of weeks ago where we talked about Ukraine and John mentioned some of the prophecy and stuff, and even the, 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 the prophecies seem to go around Egypt and Egypt versus Israel and so on and so forth, there's lots of very interesting things there. Make sure you read your Bible in the full context and get the full picture. Because, um, of course, when King Herod was coming to kill all of the children, they went to Egypt. Uh, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt to fulfill the promise, the prophecy that was back in Hosea. Moses, ah, children of Israel, they come out of Canaan, they go into Egypt uh, because of a famine, climate change, right, a drought. But then what happens a few hundred years later when God releases them from Egypt and they head towards the promised land? What is the promised land? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Ah, Milk requires cows or goats. Good milk from cows or goats requires good plants, good grass, good grazing, which requires good climate. Honey requires bees. Bees require uh, flowers. Flowers require a good climate. The promised land had gone from a drought to a good climate all of a sudden. Ah, up, down, up, down. But then don't be surprised. That's what God promised Noah. Of course, you can find out more about this if you go to our fact file and click on climate. You've got loads of content on there, especially uh, on our creationresearch.net and on um, Ask John Mackay as well. Go and check out climate, because one thing you'll find is that no matter where you look, the history and the fossils and the archaeology tells you that ever since God promised Noah that the climate would be going up and down, the climate has been going up and down indeed. The real issue, who is your authority? 
who has the right to decide, who has control of the weather and the climate, and who is sovereign over all. Because, of course, this group has been getting quite a bit of uh, attention in the media over the last few years. We actually interviewed a good number of these uh, people when they had the big protests up at the Climate Summit, the COP26 up in Glasgow. We're still working on that documentary. It may be uh, a little while before it comes out yet, but we're definitely getting somewhere with the political side of climate change. It's very interesting. And it's very interesting when you speak to these young people, not only how distraught they are, but also some of the ridiculous extremes that they claim they want to go to. See their motto there, rebel for life. Rebel for life? Who are they really rebelling against? Hmm. Well, Romans chapter 1. Worship the creation. This is what Romans chapter 1 says. They did not glorify God. They did not thank God. They became futile in their speculations. Futile? Foolish. Pointless, stupid. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they served the creature or the creation rather than the creator. For this reason, Paul says in Romans, God gave them up to vile passions. They exchanged the natural use of their bodies. They burned in homosexual lusts. They committed what is shameful. And in verse 32, such things are deserving of death. Those who worship the creature or the creation rather than the creator deserve death. Um, those that worship the creation rather than the creator will be given up to evil. Those who worship the creation deserve to die. But there is none who does good, no, not one. So before you start saying, oh, all those Extinction Rebellion folks, all those greeny folks, you all deserve to die. Well, I'm afraid they do. But then so do you. So do I. So does John Mackay. But the good news is that all have sinned and fallen, even though all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All who believe are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So can I encourage you, if you're watching this tonight and you're a Christian who really wants answers to be able to deal with the challenges of stuff like climate change or the challenges of stuff like race or racism or the stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight, make sure your focus is this part here. There is none that does good, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but... All who believe are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Having answers for the hope that is within you is good. Having answers to things like climate change and race and racism and uh, giants and all the kind of content that we do on Creation Conversations is good. And we hope that what we are doing and we pray that what we're doing with Creation Conversations gives you some of those answers. But make sure, rather than bashing people around the head and going, yes, I've won that fight, make sure that you give them the gospel. We all deserve to die. We're all sinners. But Jesus Christ is the answer. All right, to finish off our little climate investigations, let's go to Iceland. Now, this was uh, a sort of, a, a, well, a, a year and a half, just under a year and a half ago now, um, when we went to Iceland. It was... Uh, 
just after we got married, it was during our, our honeymoon, or at least my wife, who's there, uh, thought that it was a, a honeymoon. I thought it was a great excuse to go and do some research and some fossil hunting and some geological investigations. Because uh, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to Iceland. The flights and the accommodation was really cheap because nobody else was going there because of COVID. We didn't really need to, uh, you know, we didn't need to be vaccinated. We didn't need to isolate or anything like that. It was just a, a few tests when we got there it was great and you can see where we are at the moment on top of a glacier yes we got to climb up and down glaciers we got to investigate all over the island and we produced a documentary as part of that right this is what they say on the tourist information boards all over uh, the island you'll find that one tenth of iceland is covered in uh, glacier is covered in ice and this is the kind of thing they have to say this is their claim. Global surface temperature has increased by one degree C on average since pre-industrial times and considerably more in the Arctic. This is their claim. There's the top one. I hope you can see in 1935 a glacier which is kind of coming down the side of the mountain into the valley. By 2015 you can see that the glacier has gone. There's no doubt about it. The glacier has retreated. The climate has warmed up and the glacier has melted. You can find this not just in Iceland, but also around the world. A glacier in Switzerland, 2006, compared with 2018. There is a change there. Um, the main cause of global warming, the claim is, is that uh, anthropogenic emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases due to the combustion of fossil fuels and power plants, transportation and industry, decrease in the uptake of CO2 by deforestation and agriculture. In other words, mankind is causing global warming. That's the claim. Climate change, global warming is the fault of mankind. It's our fault. It's what we're doing to the planet. That's the claim. Of course, get a biblical picture. In the beginning, God created everything very good. When he made man in his image, it was very good. God created the world very good, and good meant all creatures were vegetarian. Good meant there was no winter or summer or drought or anything like that. And then the world changed. It went from good to bad to worse. So let's have a look at some of the evidence from Iceland, Iceland's climate past. Now what you can see here is a basalt flow on the top there. There's your volcanic rocks and underneath there you can see the red fossil soil. Fossil soil? Yeah, well you see I'd seen these before this red fossil soil when I visited Iceland. I'd seen it in Australia. John knows where it is. It's not too far from where John is. It's a process called laterization. Now, laterization is a moderately complicated process. It, it requires clays and it requires flooding and it requires a warm, wet climate so that over time the red iron gets leached out into the soil and you end up with these red fossil soils. Laterization. But you notice the key thing in order to get laterization here in Iceland and at places like Mount Archer in Australia, you need a warm, wet environment. Red's due to iron, you can find it all up and down Australia, it's due to a hot wet climate and in Australia you don't, well you have a hot climate but you don't have a tropical wet climate where this laterization is. I saw it in the middle of the desert. Um, interesting, the climate has changed in Australia. 
the climate has changed in Iceland. It used to be hot and wet and tropical in Australia. Now, in the places where this lateralization is, it's not. It used to be hot and wet and tropical in Iceland. Now, it's not at all. And of course, you don't have to go very far in Iceland to find evidence of even sort of uh, uh, more tropical or subtropical environments. This is in one of the museums we found at Museum Fossil Plants. Hey, look at these fossil leaves. Absolutely beautiful. Not quite the gorgeous colours that we've got in, uh, in the Australian ones we were showing earlier, but absolutely beautiful leaves. You may even be able to recognise some of these leaves. This one's a birch, uh, common in the UK, common in, um, in, the, in the USA as well. In the museum board, what was the climate like here? Have a close look up. Most of these tree species making up Icelandic fossil forests are extinct. However, their closest relatives now thrive at a more southern latitudes in tropical and subtropical coniferous forests. Tropical? Subtropical? I tell you, we were there on the tail end of summer and it was not subtropical in Iceland, right? It was cold. We were hiking over a glacier. Hmm, interesting. Tropical and subtropical was the climate uh, back when these plants were growing. The average temperature of up to 15 degrees centigrade. Now, that doesn't sound very much, but give you an, uh, an idea that the average temperature in the UK is around 9 to 9.5 degrees centigrade, right? So we're talking average over the year here, 15 degrees centigrade, uh, centigrade average is a Mediterranean climate. This is sort of, you know, south of Italy kind of climate here. Hmm. Nice and warm. The climate was warm and then it got cold very cold and we've actually got some of these leaves here in our collection so great stuff to go and investigate you can come and see us here in the uk find your see your own uh, uh creation research fossil leaves from iceland great evidence by the way you'll find that in the past it was warm now it's cold it got really cold during the ice age and then by the time the vikings arrived in the 850s ad they grew cereals and they farmed you can't grow cereals and farm today. There's only very limited places you can do it where you get warmed from the volcanic vents. Um, but the Vikings documented a warmer climate. Then the Vikings documented when it got really cold and then it warmed back up again. I mean, if you want to have a biblical perspective on uh, climate history, this is the graph we put together from over 3,000 data points. You can see uh, put into a biblical perspective, right? If we get our little uh, pointer out here. Over here, you have the fossil leaves. Soon after Noah's flood, it's a warm climate. It's documented across the world. Then you have a sudden demise in heat. You have an ice age. An ice age which likely affected not only the ice coming onto the planet in the north and the south, but also caused some of those droughts and the drying up of the Sahara that happened in uh, the, the Middle East and in Africa. You find that it warmed up during the Roman warm period, which is also documented across the UK. It cooled down after the Roman warm period and it warmed up again for the time that the Vikings arrived. 
the Vikings documented a sharp decrease in uh, in temperature, and it, it killed a lot of people, warmed up again a little bit, and then got colder and colder into the Little Ice Age, at which point there was no open water around Iceland at all. It was completely frozen solid. We have a Little Ice Age documented here in the UK as well. The Thames River would freeze over and you'd have a fair on it, and it's been getting warmer and warmer ever since. But notice where we are here. It's not yet as warm as it was when the Vikings were here. It's not yet as warm as where the Romans were around. Not quite in Iceland, but certainly around in Europe. And you'll notice it's nowhere near as warm as it was when those plants were growing. Climate change, up, down, up, down, up, down. Exactly as God promised. Um, here's your central England temperatures, by the way. This is from the University of Leeds, the Faculty of Environment. So it's a fairly prestigious chart, although it has since disappeared since the University of East Anglia's uh, chart has take, taken over. But you'll notice the same thing. Up, down, up. Um, there's your medieval warm period. Baltic Sea freezes in 1303. Massive floods in 1315. Galileo discovers sunspots in 1610, and that's important because the more sunspots there are, the hotter the planet, uh, the hotter the sun. The hotter the sun, well, that's going to have an effect on Earth's climate, isn't it? Um, and one final thing to close with, uh, a little perspective, local perspective from the UK. This was in 2019, and me and John visited this abandoned medieval village. Abandoned? Yes, it was built during the medieval warm period, down in Dartmoor, and then they abandoned it in the mid-1400s because of the cold. Because the cold and the wet had just come and they couldn't survive anymore, so they upped and headed for the other side of the hills where the towns and the cities were, where they could actually survive. It was warm, and then it got cold. Climate change, for sure. Now, it's warmer again. It was a beautiful day when we were there, down in August. Uh, climate change. Up, down, up, down down the history really tells no lies um you'll find that between 1645 and 1710 there was a dramatic decline in sunspot numbers remember the more sunspots you have the hotter the sun the less sunspots the cooler the sun and ah there we go uh, in almost uh, uh, apparent response to that you have the little ice age when the thames would freeze over and that was the uh, time when the climate temperature really plummeted around the world interesting well one thing you'll find for absolutely certain and we'll just uh, skip to the end here now to just follow up with a few little bits of uk history humans arrive in the uk you have the earliest evidence of humans from a place called Haysborough in Norfolk. Um, it was a warm, wet environment when they arrived here because their footprints are buried in peat bogs, which preserve great big animals and beautiful plants. You'll find the glaciers then came and shoved a load of sediment, glacial sediment, sands and stuff on top of this peat bed, on top of this peat bog where the humans first arrived. So you'll find that the climate went from warm to cold. Glaciers now covered the UK. Skip forward in history and you'll find the Celts wore skirts up in Scotland, right? Uh, it was a warmer environment. The Romans came and they grew Mediterranean grapes as far north as Scotland. The climate was warmer. The Vikings could grow grapes and produce wine in York. The climate was warmer. You find the medieval warm period arrived 
and well you built cathedrals and churches without any fireplaces because you simply didn't need them the climate was warmer skip forward and the climate had uh, plummeted the temperature had plummeted and you had a party on the thames river the little ice age and the climate was cooler and now you have greta thunberg saying that all warming is our fault now learn your history and get a biblical perspective both those things will really really help you i mean the old phrase right those who don't learn history are condemned to repeat it um and those who do learn history have to sit back and watch everybody else repeat it right but it really does pay to learn history whether you're dealing with politics whether you're dealing with ukraine and russia whether you're dealing with um uh, history or uh, or climate as well well i'll just finish there for now Let's uh, bring me back up onto the screen because the next topic we're going to be dealing with is, uh, if I can escape, here we go. The next topic we're going to be dealing with is a little bit of a, uh, a, a controversial one. But before we get onto that, let's have a look and see if there's any questions that have come through, Sam, or any support. Uh, we've ha we haven't had any donations yet. Um, however, we have had a few questions. Uh, we've had one in from Shugiwa. Uh, put that up on screen. Uh, if the fossils were laid down by the flood, how could continental drift be caused by the flood? Wouldn't they split after being laid down? It's a good question. Um, John, do you want to do you want to comment on that? As you are, oh, I'll make a comment first on your Norfolk history there, uh, because you personally have lived in Norfolk, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Norfolk, you grew up there. That's right. And you also have taken me fossil collecting up and down the coast of Norfolk. Now, remember when we visited that upside down site where you've got um, old rocks sitting on top of young yeah. rocks. Um, yeah. and, and in the morning, we were wearing a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. By afternoon, the wind had changed and come from Russia. And we were putting on woolies and, and everything yeah. because it was very cold. I remember. Oh, it was unbelievable for an Australian. I mean, I, I, I'm used to warm and, and cool. I'm not used to warm and freezing to death. So yeah. you, you do have climate change on a day-by-day -day basis, yeah. no matter what dear little Greta says. Um, you, you need to pray for that girl that she'll see the real world around her and not the theoretical abstract. And a point that you made is a really good one about the need to understand history, whether it's politics, like in Russia, or whether it's uh, the history of climate. And we've said it over and over again, if you want to understand the present or tomorrow, visit yesterday and visit it often. Because what's already happened, well, it's going to happen again. Remember the scripture says there's nothing new under the sun. You and I in a world that's continually looking like it changes actually is just more of the same at a different scale. So uh, good stuff, Joseph. As to this one, if the fossils are laid down by the flood, how could continental drift be caused by the flood? Wouldn't they stood after be being laid down? There's two things that are mixed up here. One is the belief in Noah's flood. So Francis Bacon, when he looked at the world in 1601 and writes his thoughts down, so by 1604, if you haven't heard of Francis Bacon, he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He knew about money. He was the Queen's Chief Spy Master. So he was into intrigue and this theory versus that theory. And he's also the guy who decided English education has had enough of Catholicism's mysticism, right? And the separation of the reality of the world from 
ancient Greek mysticism, which is what Catholicism had. They were Christianized up to their neck, but their brain was still pagan. So he wrote a book that you and I call um, Scientific Method. But if you look at its full title, it's to do with how to fix up um, the education system that's been such a problem and we now need to get back to a biblical perspective. So Francis Bacon writes a book that you and I know as a scientific method on how to know if something really is true. Okay, now when he looked around, his first comments on what appears to be, well, by his time, Christopher Columbus has sailed the oceans blue in 1492 and gone to America and back. We know about the world. We've known that it's been around ever since the ancient Greeks because they figured that out by using the, the shadows on poles and trees, right? So you know the world's shape. But he's figured out, okay, if the edge of France and England look like they fit together and the edge of the European and African continents look like they tuck into the edge of South America, they knew all this stuff, right, in Bacon's day, then somehow they've been split apart, okay? His suggestion, Noah's flood. By the time you get post-Darwin, Noah's flood is out. So they have long, slow processes. Now, if you have a long, slow process, uh, the question is very valid. If you're going to separate South America from Africa over millions and millions of years, and you're going to move it a couple of inches every day, you will not have any fossils that survive. Um, if you don't believe me, come and visit an earthquake zone. See what happens. I mean, the world's biggest earthquake, we had 200 feet, 60 meters of shift in the one hour, the mountain just went boom, right? Now that is catastrophic and nothing along that crack survives. And maybe away from it where there's no movement except vertical, you'll get fossil surviving, but where the movement is, absolutely everything is pulverized and destroyed. Long, slow changes will do that. When you have a look at Noah's flood, okay, the plants, the animals are washed in and everything is wet and soupy. Now, if you watch our experiments at Jurassic Art, if you have a look at our strata machine, then you can see what happens to strata when everything is liquid. Um, interesting thing is the strata will deform, but yet nothing is destroyed. So when you have a flood in which the plants and that are buried in soupiness, I mean, remember I said we've had a couple of weeks of rain almost here, and on Friday yesterday, my backyard was dirt soup. <laughs> I could stand on the grass and I didn't destroy anything. It just sank with me. So you'll find that the, the comment here has got two things mixed up. One is Noah's flood and the other is a concept of big, long, slow drift. If you put the flood in there in a serious context and your fossils are largely formed in sediment that's actually laid down rapidly in water, you're going to get a lot less deformation and any deformation will only illustrate one thing. Your fossils are a mixed deposit. Now, that's the characteristic that we're seeing. The plants and the animals that are found together usually don't live together. So you're looking at evidence of a flood. When you look at continental drift and earth movement, I mean, just take, for example, the movement of the earth uh, at Indonesia when it just shifted 10 meters. The catastrophism of both the people's society, you know, the 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 places there in Indonesia that suffered from the tidal wave, from the tsunami, it just destroys things. So rapid movement, as we normally have, uh, is a destructive force. Long, slow movement of such magnitude across oceans is going to destroy it totally. 
Great stuff. Thanks for that, John. Any other questions or any climate-related questions, Sam? And then we'll move on to our second topic. Uh, yeah, we've got uh, another question from Shogoar. He said, uh, isn't continental drift basically taught in the Bible, Genesis 1, 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. All right, go ahead, Joseph. It's not so much continental drift as continental thrust, I think. Um, it's uh, definitely implied that, I mean, if you've got water covering the whole earth um, and you want to, the water to be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear, what you need is a place for that water to go. The only way you're really going to get that is by shoving the continent, right, the land, up out of the water and creating a basin for which to pour all the, that water that would have been covering the land, right? So you've got kind of like a, a, a massive movement of continents, thrusting it up and pushing it into the side. So it's uh, uh, one thing, I mean, that's definitely for sure is there were two times in Earth's history when the world was covered in water. And in both those times, it talks about the land rising up and the water rushing off the land, right? Genesis chapter one, and also in, during Noah's flood, right? And you can see parallels in the Psalms where it talks about the waters rushing off the land and down into the valleys to the place where God has given them and the mountains rising up and so on and so forth. So you'll find there are definitely parallels there, but one thing that won't have certainly been there uh, on day three of creation are any fossils. Uh, and a lot of that would have also been destroyed. A lot of that uh, continent area would have been destroyed uh, during Noah's flood and redistributed and turfed up and dumped back down again, right? So when you go and see in Australia and you see a, a, a huge amount of this sort of, um, what do you call it? It's like a reconstituted um, granite out there, Ayers Rock and stuff, isn't it, John? Is it our, yes. our, our archives it's, or something it's like It's our archives. Archives, that's the one, yeah, where it's clearly been by water ripped up, shredded up, um, completely, you know, uh, disintegrated and uh, and decomposed and redistributed in this area. So you're looking at similar things, but uh, there, there are some key differences in there. Any, any okay, thoughts, John? Just, just to add a, a comment there, again, there's a confusion in terms. Continental drift is not taught in Genesis 1 because Genesis 1 is the foundation of a continent, right? right? So you have one mass of land simply based on the concept that even Alexander von Humboldt, remember the Humboldt current and his famous geography in the early 1800s? Now, he was a biblical scholar. He's quite adamant in his own biographies that he based all of his work, the discovery of the, the currents that took him all over the place, the presence of continents here, there and everywhere, based on Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 10. Because in Genesis 1, there's one continent and there's one mass of water. By the time you get to Noah's flood, the world is cataclysmos, as Peter says. The fountains of the deep break open again. So everywhere from Francis Bacon all the way up uh, to Humboldt, these guys are Bible scholars. They have a biblical view of one mass of land, one continent, one mass of water, by the time you get to Bacon and, and Columbus has gone around the world, or Humboldt, who was himself an oceanographer, who's trying to deal with seven main masses of water now, whereas the world started with one. Something's changed, right? So the change has occurred in both the breaking up of that mass of land and the destruction of it, right? So you've got not only breaking up, it's not breaking up and shifting around the world, as our normal continental drift starts over millions of years, it's definitely breaking up. And then the whole lot is sinking 
then it's re-raised up and you'll find that on the present continent, say in Australia, or you go to, um, uh, what's that uh, museum area just on the edge of Wales where they found the Dudley, Dudley bugs, right? Dudley, yeah, Not yeah, far yeah. from Dudley, you'll find there's a big unconformity and you can see that unconformity also in Australia. I followed it through into Europe. You can see it in America, all the way along the bottom of the Grand Canyon, the halfway up the top and, and keep going into Northern Canada. And you can see the world has been washed away and redeposited. So yes, you're right. The concept of continents or the continent breaking up is based on Genesis, but the concept of long, slow shifting continents is not based on Genesis. Everything's happening, particularly in Noah's flood, very, very rapidly indeed. Yeah, and that's the that's the key. It's the rapidness of it rather than the um, the the driftness uh, aspect of it. All right, Sam. Any final things before we move on? Uh, yeah, we've got one final thing from. Oh no, that's the wrong one. Uh, this one here from Shugawa. Uh, how do we know the temperature in Iceland in the past, like the time of the Vikings? Okay, well, if you're dealing with plants and fossils, it's easy because, as they said, we've got um, comparative plants alive today that can only survive at certain temperatures or within certain temperature parameters, right? Uh, and in some cases, like, uh, you know, we can grow Australian plants here in the UK to a certain degree. They don't do very well. But one thing they don't do at all is produce very good seed that you can then go and plant and grow again. So if you want a thriving um, uh, group of plants, right, something that's actually going to survive to be left enough left over to bury, you do need to have the right climate parameters. So the plants are easy. If you've got those plants alive there and they're flourishing, which they clearly were, you've got a tropical to subtropical uh, around 15 degrees centigrade average, which is sort of, you know, South Mediterranean kind of, uh, kind of climate, right? So that's the first thing time of the vikings well the vikings did keep records uh they did have form of writing their runic form of writing they also kept oral records and you'll find there's a number of books that actually document historical happenings so they say when we arrived we could set up camp and we could grow grain well, you can't grow grain today in Iceland, therefore it was clearly warmer in the past. And they can actually document, oh, this year has got worse and worse and worse and we're really struggling to grow grain. Now we can't grow grain at all. Now our plants which we brought with us are just not growing in the slightest. It's got bitterly cold, things have increased. We can't get out uh, to the sea to fish because we're being entrapped by ice, right? And there was one record of a period of winters where it became so bad that they actually ended up eating the dogs and they actually had to throw the old and the weak people off of cliffs um, because they, the, you know, the choice was, well, do we feed the young and the, the healthy, um, which are going to make the most out of the food, or do we let the old ones slowly starve to death? Now, that's not a choice that I think you or I would ever want to have to choose, right? And we pray it never has to happen. But you'll find they said that, oh, we can actually not afford to give food to the old and to the weak. We need to throw them off cliffs in order to, uh, you know, finish their life early without having to slowly starve to death. 
So you'll find records like this, which give you, I was warmer when they got there. They were able to grow things. They were able to, uh, you know, uh, enjoy life uh, and document the number of amount of wildlife that was there as well. And over the years, it got worse and worse and worse and worse until you find the Little Ice Age where we had proper documentation right and we had uh, a church which was established in Ice in Iceland so records would sort of be passed back and forth and you find there was no uh, no sea anywhere around Iceland it was completely locked up in ice it hasn't ever been since so you'll find the historical records are a really really key thing when looking at the evidence of temperature and climate in Iceland I'll just add one thing to that, Joseph. Uh, Sam, if you want to put up uh, where they can download the um, Iceland uh, DVD, the documentary, as an MP4 or order a copy of it, uh, then Fire and Ice is really worth seeing. If, you, if you're enjoying what we're doing, you can see the whole lot documented in Iceland. Um, it's now available as a DVD, MP4, or you can stream it as well. So that's worth seeing for everything that we're, we're doing at the present time. Great stuff. All right, let's move on to our second topic, John. Um, a slightly controversial topic. We've dealt with it in a whole uh, in a whole program before, but we're looking at a, we're, we're sort of looking at more of a, a, a biblical uh, look at it. You know, last time we dealt with the topic of giants, we looked at some of the biological issues and so on and so forth, but we really want to get into the, the nitty gritty of the Bible. So can I start by asking you about the most famous giant of all? Um, before we get into the, the weird and the wonderful Nephilim and what's going on in Genesis uh, and the early chapters of it, let's talk about Goliath. The, uh, the famous champion of the Philistines who, uh, you know, got knocked on the head by David and so on and so forth. What's, what's going on with, with Goliath? Okay, well, he's the one that is known because if you went to Sunday school in the 50s and 60s, you learnt songs about Goliath and little, little David with his three stones and or however many stones he collected and he swung his little um, thing round and round and round and a stone went off and hit Goliath in the head. So that ended not only Christian uh, thought, but a very widespread folklore. You see it in kids' stories and all that sort of thing. Um, of course, Goliath is recorded as a real person and he has sons that are mentioned in the Bible. Some of his sons are deformed and Goliath and his family disappear shortly after the time of King David. Um, he, Goliath, of course, is dead by the time David becomes king. but all his brothers and sisters, which weren't a huge number, are killed off by David's chief men. Now, I guess we can say a couple of points here. One is, if you've got a, an attacking army, the Philistines, and they want to bring down this little Israelite crowd, then if you've got hundreds and hundreds of these giants, you don't just send one, right? So we know that there never were a huge number of giants in Goliath's day. Uh, we know that they were killable. Uh, in fact, size-wise, do you remember how big Goliath is supposed to be, Joseph? Some, I mean, it's somewhere around the nine foot mark in our in our modern yeah. measurements. I think nine to yeah. nine and a half feet. It was something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, two and a half meters or so. Yeah. And he's described as having a a spear as big as a weaver's beam, right? And if you've ever seen the old-fashioned weaver's beam, it's a big, thick object, and he could have just knocked you on the head with it. But he was so easy to bring down for a very important point. The story of Goliath and David is very interesting, but really it's about a big man who had very little faith in the real God. 
his faith was in the pagan gods versus a little man who had big faith in the real God. And of course, King David says, okay, I've only got a few stones, but my God is bigger than your God and my God's going to bring you down. And he ends up chopping his head off. By the way, parents, if you're listening, don't skip the bloodthirsty parts in the Bible. They're there for a real reason, particularly if you're thinking of little Ukraine, Christian faith versus Putin and all of his pagan uh, 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 and, you know, uh, evolutionist type advisors, you need to keep that in perspective as well. So what we're looking at with the whole story of the giants is there's not just physical facts that are recorded, Goliath's height, his size, the number of them. There's a spiritual background as well. So let's have a look at the Bible teaching on here. I'm going to put my screen up now, Joseph, if you wouldn't mind. There we go. There we are. Well, you know, something that I've thought of, John, as well, just, yeah. just, just quickly interesting is, I mean, the word giant today, obviously, you know, something big. And Goliath was a giant in the sense that he was very big. He was bigger than the average person, right? But can I ask, where did the word giant come from? Um, okay, you'll notice that on the know. screen here, Joseph, I've got three words. Giants are angels or Nephilim, yeah. and a reference to our website. So let's bring up the Bible reference. And here we are in King James. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. Now, this is the first reference to big guys. Or are they big? There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bore children to them, the same became mighty men, which were men of old. Now, here's an interesting fact of history. We see the word giants in King James, and yet people have shied away from that word now because if you go to some of the more modern translations, they'll use the word Nephilim. Now, notice the word I-M at the end, the spelling, Nephilim. Anytime you see a Hebrew word transliterated into English, if it finishes with I-M, that's a plural. So back in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, Elohim. The I am means that this God is plural. In the beginning, God created, and we've said this before, the, the, the word created, the verb created is a male verb. So Elohim is a male God, plural. And that's all you know about this God in Genesis chapter 1. So from a little bit of linguistics, you know that plural is associated with Nephilim. So there's more than one. And there's all sorts of stories out there about fallen angels. In fact, sometimes the stories get so bizarre. Uh, you have alien spaceships as well. Yep, outer space beings coming down to Earth. But your question, Joe, is why giants? So if we have a look here, the issues that we're going to talk about, I'm going to come back to your question in a moment because it's really important. But building from that, you have people talking about angels who left their abode in God's creation in heaven, they came down to earth at some time in history. They mated with women and they had giants, which now are referred to as Nephilim, which is the original word. Now, can I warn you? Uh, my dad-in-law used to run the Bible Society here. So I got to see many of the newer translations, some very good, some very poor, before they went public. 
I've studied all sorts of Bible translations. And one thing I've learned, and I've learned it off Bible translators too, when you're trying to make a translation in New Guinea languages or Polynesian languages, don't bring words in that have a history which is a way beyond the meaning. Okay, giants. Where do we get the thought of giants from? Because in Genesis chapter 5 and 6, there is no size mentioned. Why are they regarded as big guys? Well, two reasons. One is you see the word used over in Numbers chapter 13, and it does give you a size for them. Ah, interesting association. But why the word giants? Well, there's all sorts of problems here because in English history, in Greek history, in Italian history, Latin history, the word giants comes from the following mythology. Gia, the goddess of the earth. You're right. G-I-A is a goddess. And who are the N-T-E-S? Well, it used to be a longer word. It used to be gigantes. Yep, gigantic, big. Um, yep, that's the word we use for describing something very big. But Gia is the goddess of the earth. And she made a, a male. His name was Uranus. Uh, you know, kids play a lot with that when they pronounce the planet Uranus. Um, right? So that they, they think that's funny. But Uranus is her son. But then this goddess mates with her own son and she has big kids, otherwise known as the Gigantes. So a spiritual being mates with a physical being and they have, well, the word gets shortened to giants. So in the word giants, the GIA bit is a warning. This is Greek mythology. Nephilim is Hebrew. It's not. So continuing on. Uh, these Nephilim were part of Satan's scheme, say many Bible teachers, to totally destroy the godly line, Noah, etc., who was a godly man, and therefore prevent Jesus coming because they knew God's plan was to save man. They'd heard him telling Adam that and Eve that back in the beginning. So therefore, God intervenes and the flood is said to destroy them. Okay, tie it all together. And uh, you find in Jude chapter 6, that's one of those really short Bible chapters. Only one chapter in the whole of the book. Easy to read in one bite. And the angels, which kept not... This is not Jude chapter 6. This is Jude verse 6. There's only one chapter. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. They were created as spiritual beings to be with God, but they end up being kicked out of heaven. He reserved these angels in everlasting change under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Yes, they've been put into a special place. Yes, they are still going to be judged. By the time we get to verse 14, ah, here's the connection. Enoch, also the seventh from Adam. Now, many Christians don't know there's a book called Enoch, the book of Enoch. You can download it for free on the web or you can buy your printed edition. I think you can even get it from Amazon. Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. Yes, this is a reference to the Enoch back in Genesis. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. Okay, a little bit more about Enoch. Verse 15, his saints as well as Enoch are coming to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly amongst them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him him being the Lord God himself. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is you find a reference to this Enoch. Well, you find a reference to a Enoch in this publication, 
the book of Enoch. Behold, he comes with 10,000 of his saints. This is a book, by the way, which is not in the Bible. Neither does the book of Job say he's quoting from the book of Enoch. The book of Jude, rather, says Enoch said this. Behold, he comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment. No doubt about it. This is what you read in the book of Jude as a quote from Enoch. And it says here, these utter with their mouths unbecoming language against God and speak harsh things of his glory. Now, there's no doubt about it. This quote looks like the one that's in the book of Jude. So is this giving biblical authority to the thing called the book of Enoch? Okay, you can go and get your own copy. You can do what I did, download the whole lot from the uh, web. And there's no doubt about it. That's how we got it. The original version reached us through translations and retranslations from Aramaic, Greek and Ethiopic, and now the modern Anglo-Saxon. So you too can actually read it. Now, in all of that, think carefully. Giants are known. There's Goliath after the flood. There's Goliath in the days of King David. But there's also that verse in Genesis chapter 6 of giants in the land when Noah existed and also after that. Ah, when you go one step further, your New Testament warns you about Satan and what he can do. This is referring to Satan's disciples who sneaked into the church. Yep, you heard me right. One of the most common places to find Satan's disciples is actually in the church. I mean, if you're Satan and you want to attack the work of Christ, why attack it from outside? Everyone can recognize you. Sneak him into the church. I spoke to a, a guy who'd been a, an occultist, a head of a coven, and he said his main job as a deacon in the Baptist church was to bring down pastors. Yep, he was a Satanist. Praise the Lord he got saved by the gospel, which is far greater in power than anything the Satanists can come up with. Such are false apostles, deceitful workers. They transform themselves into apostles of Christ. They look good. They sound good. They even preach occasionally. And no marvel, don't be amazed at this, Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if Satan's ministers can be transformed into ministers of righteousness. They look good. They sound good. They even do good. To achieve evil. I mean, why have a prayer meeting every Wednesday night at church? The special Christmas is coming up. We need more time to practice the choir. So eventually you end up having no prayer meeting and the church collapses because it so sneakily was robbed of its source of power in Christ. Hmm. Satan does this. Don't be surprised if people do it. Now, at the end of this section, you're going to have an opportunity to ask questions. So get them ready. Usually this subject comes up and Joseph, you traveled Australia with me and you know very well that people came up with what about the giants? Because the giants are in the book of Enoch. The giants are mentioned in Genesis. Enoch is mentioned in Genesis. Are these the same? Oh, yes, we've dealt with sessions on fake pictures. There's one there with someone looking at this gigantic skeleton. Let's sort out one thing. Is the book of Enoch referred to um, in, in Jude is the biblical Enoch the same Enoch or a different Enoch there's the biblical Enoch Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah he was Methuselah's dad he lived 300 years wow and he had many sons and daughters and all the, de the days of Enoch 
we're 365 years. Normally the characters in the Old Testament before the flood, it'll say, and then he died. But Enoch is the exception. It says Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. He never did die as every other person on this planet has died except for one. But we won't talk about him today. The biblical Enoch, he was Noah's great-grandfather. He was taken to be with God 669 years before the flood, a total of 69 years before Noah was even born. The book of Enoch, there's no doubt about it. We've got copies. We've got copies of some of the originals. The book of Enoch was dated 300 to 550 BC. How do we know that? Well, we certainly know that that's thousands of years after Noah's flood, but we've dug up copies, complete copies, found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there isn't a scholar on the planet that dates these anywhere before the 3rd or the 4th century BC. Now, the book of Enoch has definitely got some similarities with the book of Genesis and with what's stated in the book of Jude in the New Testament. I mean, let's go through some of these, some of these parrot comparisons and you'll see I've got dot, dot, dots in this section here in chapter 7. It happened after the sons of men had multiplied in those days that daughters were born, dot, dot, dot. And when the sons of heaven, dot, 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 said to each other, come, let us select for ourselves wives, dot, dot, dot. Then they took wives, each choosing for himself, dot, 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 and dot, 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 giants. Now, I'm not trying to drive you dotty. Where I've got the dots there is where some of the important similarities or differences are left out. Notice one thing that daughters were born to them. These daughters are described as elegant and beautiful. Now, that's not in Genesis. In the next verse, and when the angels, the sons of heaven. Now, angels is not actually mentioned in Genesis. It says, when the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now, for those of you who think the sons of God are angels, I do have to remind you that every one of you as a Christian became a child of God, a son of God, when you were born again. Jesus is a son of God. Adam was the son of God. So please don't tell me this term refers only to angels. Behold them. They became enamored of them. Notice that they're adding things to Genesis and the last section from the progeny of men and let us begat children. Ah, now I'm going to skip chapters three to nine or verses three to nine because they are so different. You'd almost laugh when you saw them. We'll come back to some of those a bit later. And verse 10, when they took wives, choosing for themselves. That's what it says in Genesis. But notice the differences. Whom they began to approach and with whom they cohabited, teaching them sorcery, incantations, and the dividing of roots and trees. Now, there's no doubt about it. There are similarities in the book of Enoch and the, the, the statements about Enoch and the giants in the Old Testament book of Genesis. But what seems to be here is there's a lot of additions, similarities, and there were giants in the land in those days. Well, that's similar, that's for sure. But notice something about the giants. The women conceiving brought forth. It doesn't say that. It says there were giants in the land in those days and also after that. No reference to the women actually giving birth to the giants. Yeah, you say that's trivial? No, it's a real difference because the next one really is a real difference. These giants were 300 cubits long. 
450 feet if you're watching in America, 150 meters, which gave rise to a second theory. You see, there are giants after that in Numbers chapter 13. And everybody in Noah's flood dies except for those that are on the ark. So how did the giants survive to give rise to a second lot of giants? You see the story, there were angels that fell. They mated with women. They had giants in the land. And also after that, so these giants have to be connected. Oh, I know the best story I've came across is these giants were the size of Noah's ark. And so they simply held onto the outside and swam for the whole one year and 10 days. Or if you want to be generous, for the nine months, the ark actually floated. They got off and they gave rise to the next lot of giants who uh, devoured all which the labor of man produced. These were ravenous giants until it became impossible to feed them. They made men and women their slaves when they turned themselves into men in order to devour them. They tried to trick the people. They began to injure birds, beasts, reptiles and fishes. There was violence on the land in those days. They began to eat each other and to drink their own blood. These were cannibalistic. Well, half cannibalistic because they were half spirit beings. And so God sent the flood to destroy them. Now, here's where we need to really just double check. Now, now you know, the reformers were famous for one thing, and that is check scripture against scripture. So why did God send the flood? Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8 and onwards. Why did God send the flood? Was it to destroy the giants? Well, let's have a look. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, I mean, that these giants were eating each other and eating people. It was certainly wicked. It was great in the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart. Whose heart? Well, that's in green. Notice we've got green and yellow. Lord is in green. Man is in green. His is in green. This is a reference to man. Man's heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You notice the people who are referred to here, the man that the Lord has made has become absolutely evil. Now, remember I said my father-in-law used to run the Bible Society. I used to get uh, the copies of every version and perversion that was being made on the planet to check out. Here's one thing I learned to do. If you want to know what Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, count up the nouns, count up the pronouns, count up the adverbs and the adjectives and see what they're referring to. So if we use the word Lord and he, it's seven times in two verses. If we use the word man, it's four times. If we look at Noah, it's once. There are no references to giants at all and certainly no reference to angels or demons. In fact, in this chapter, there's never anything about giants, angels or demons or serpents being the reason for the flood that God sends. The only reason you can ever grammatically, historically, linguistically say God sent the flood because the man that he had made had become so wicked, God actually repented of even making them. But there was one person who escaped, and that was Noah and his family. By the way, Joseph, you got any questions at this point in time before we do one last section in this short version? I'm not sure we've had any questions come through. Sam, if you're there, I think I can see the questions here. I don't think there's anything that's coming uh, through specifically. Not specifically on this section, no. Okay, no. well, in that case, I'll continue on 
with the next section here on what happened to the pre-flood giant. So if you want to put my Absolutely, that's back on. on. And we'll have a okay. maybe have a bit of a chat at the end as well, John, and see if yep. I'll have oh, some we do that as well. Sure. <laughs> okay, again going back to Genesis 5:32 to put it into context. Noah was 500 years old and he had three sons. And remember how we've commented on this? 500 years without kids and then diapers. 500 years old kids uh, without kids and then having to look after three of them. But only three. These are the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And later it describes how everybody in the planet is descended from them. <clears throat> Next verse. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took wives of all that they were chose and then the controversial passage there were giants in the earth in those days okay what happened to them did they cling on to the outside of the ark uh, is this a reference to big people well there's no scale mentioned here size the scale comes over from the days of Goliath so what happened to these pre-flood giants put it in context that's when they lived. Adam lived roughly 6,000 years ago. Noah and the giants and the flood is roughly 4,500 years ago. You can ask questions about the chronology in the Bible, but the giants are just appearing on planet Earth by the time of Noah's flood. And Noah's flood, <clears throat> all flesh died that moved on the Earth. This is at the end of 40 days. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing at the end of a month and one week that crept on the Earth and every man and all his nostril was in the breath of life now if these giants were crossbreeds between humans and angels they appeared so human like they they could get up close and eat you okay these were air breathing land dwelling monsters but they weren't on the ark which only contained noah and his three sons and their wives and all the animals that god sent what happened to you if you weren't on the ark you could cling on as much as you like, but you actually died. They drowned beyond a shadow of a doubt. So who populated the world after Noah's flood? Genesis 9.19 says Noah's three sons. From then, the whole earth was populated. No giants, no giants hanging on, no survivors. It's even restated in Genesis chapter 10, verse 32. It's used as the basis of Paul's sermon. Uh, to the, the Athenians, that we are all descended from one man, Adam, not by the giants, via Noah and the survivors of the flood, who are Noah's three sons. Now, remember what we said about the book of Enoch, the oldest copies around about the third and fourth century, and we've got quite a few of them. But, of course, in Genesis, you'll find that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have hundreds of commentaries on Genesis is way more important to those people who filed that away so the Romans couldn't destroy them. And we now have the benefit of those copies of Genesis and commentaries on Genesis. Okay, Genesis chapter... No, no, not Genesis, the book of Enoch, chapter 9, verse 1. Notice how we've said that the book of Enoch is full of some stuff from Genesis, but it's got a whole heap of other stuff. Then Michael and Gabriel, Raphael, Serial and Uriel looked down from heaven and saw the quantity of blood which was shed on earth and all the iniquity which was done upon it and said one to another, it's the voice of their cries. The earth deprived of her children has cried even to the gate of heaven. 
and now you holy ones of heaven, the souls of men complain, saying, obtain justice for us. And it goes on to read, then the Most High spoke, and God sent Arasalio to the sons of Lamech, saying, say to him my name, conceal yourself. Then explain to him the consumption which is about to take place. Now, do you notice the difference? God told Noah about the flood. Lamech would not even see it. He died in the year of the flood in your biblical record. Explain to Lamech? Well, explain to Noah. I suspect it was Noah who explained to Lamech. All the earth shall perish. The waters of a deluge shall come upon it, and all things which are in it shall be destroyed. So what is the book of Enoch? First of all, you have to be very blunt. I know there are many Christians who won't like me saying this, but I've read it. I've got a copy of it. Yes, it has got stuff that's in the Bible, but it's got way beyond what's in the Bible. It's got stuff you have to call Jewish occultic mythology, and there is no way of, well, if you're going to use this as your source of authority, then you are taking something which has not only got bits of the Bible in it, it's got something the Bible warns you about. In the last book, the book of Revelation, the book which is about the coming judgment, Oh, you see, the coming judgment is based on Noah's flood. All were judged at Noah's day except for the ones who by grace were saved. I testify to every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add to these things, yes, and it's not just a reference to the book of Revelation, it's a reference to the whole of Scripture, which finishes from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any takes away from the words of this book, you put in the God in John chapter 1 or a God. Yep, the Christadelphians have taken away something from God's word and God will judge them for it. If any man shall take away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part. Hey, look out of this book of life. Your penalty is a loss of eternal life. Your judgment is you will never see the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, now I'm going to finish with a question myself. And then we'll throw it out to everybody else. Because one of the commonest things I've been told is that Satan did this to disrupt the godly line of Noah, to disrupt God's plan to bring Christ from Adam through into godly Noah up to Jesus through David and to give us a savior. Can I warn you? Noah, we are told, was saved by grace. What's grace? Something you get that you don't deserve something that you get that you can't pay back something that you get from god alone who is without sin who makes it available for sinners so by grace you can be saved Noah wasn't saved because he was good enough to get on the ark he was saved because his faith was in god and god was good enough to actually grant him this, the temporary salvation of being on the ark can i give you a, a good punchline at the end there hasn't been a godly line on planet Earth since Adam sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Adam and Noah and David and you and I. The only exception is Jesus Christ. So please don't give me that stuff that Satan had enough power to trick God and try and destroy the godly line for one last reason, and you need to come to grips with this. Those of you who are very Armenian and don't like God's sovereignty may not like this at all when it talks about Christ was sacrificed 
before the foundation of the world. So even though Adam sinned, God already had his plan B in place. A saviour was already ready, who by grace that you could be saved through faith in him. And even faith was a gift. So please don't excuse yourself saying, you've got faith, I haven't. God offers it freely, just ask and the gift will be yours. I think that's a good time to swap to our next subject, Joseph, and people can ask questions if they like. I think it is absolutely. Um, can I just start with a question of my of my own? Um, and uh, while you answer it, I'm going to go and check out because we've just been told that there are no super chats available. So I need to make sure that that's switched on at my end. But John, um, okay, toss out the Book of Enoch. All right, I've read it as well, um, and it, it it really is just a, a Jewish occultic writing, basically. Definitely use using genesis as kind of a scaffold but um that that's about it give it to the book of enoch just going with the information that we have in genesis right it talks about the nephilim the book of enoch clearly says that the nephilim are the result of angels and men reproducing or angels and women reproducing and creating the the nephilim Forget the book of Enoch, just from scripture. Is that what scripture actually says? Or is there something that we need to sort of make sure we have our biblical hermeneutics uh, accurately okay. with? All right. So Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 6, where you first come across the giants in the land. In chapter 6 and verse 1 and onwards, it says there were giants in the land in those days and also after that. And the context is talking about um, how you, you find there's Noah there, there was Noah, and there was giants in the land in those days, and also after that, when the sons, sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now, you can try and exegete this in any way you like, but here's what you'll ultimately find. This is not to be read in the following way. When the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were fair, and they took wives, whoever they chose from, and there were giants in the land in those days. That little land is actually there. And most people read it this way. When the sons of God saw the daughters of men, they took whoever they liked and they made them their wives. Therefore, they had children who were giants. Now, it doesn't matter you deal with Kiel and Delich, who's sort of some very sophisticated Hebrew scholars. I've got their writings and I'd, check, I'd encourage you to check that. Or you go into Jameson, Fawcett and Brown and check there. And they make one point that even my father-in-law could have made. The little land says those two things are happening at the same time. The second one is not caused by the first. So the giants were not the result of the sons of God uh, being mating with the daughters of men. Much more like, as has been a traditional interpretation, the sons of God are the godly line. The people who've descended from Adam, who've chosen God, you know, the descendants of of Shem back there in Genesis, the godly believer, not the descendants of Canaan. But by the time you get down to the present day, you know what this is about because you've seen young Christians who'll grow up, they want a wife, and there's not enough Christian girls around, so they'll take a woman, any that they choose, the sons, the daughters of men. And eight times out of ten, you'll find that's a disastrous union and God warns us against it. Now, you may not have giants as a result, but the giants in Genesis are not connected to the uh, to the results of those those unions. 
okay, why do I say it this way? Because there's one thing you can prove from this chapter, and it is that you know who wrote the book of Genesis. So you skip over to Numbers chapter 13, and it says there were giants in the land, and also after that in Genesis chapter 6, you go to after that, which is Numbers 13, where Moses, the man of God, has sent the spies into Canaan, and they come back. Only two of them give a positive report. The others say, oh, there were big guys there. There were giants. They brought back a bunch of grapes. It took two men to carry one bunch of grapes. And they all say, oh, it doesn't matter about the size of grapes. It doesn't matter that the land is flowing with milk and honey. There are big guys there, and we're like grasshoppers compared to them. There were giants in the land, and that is the time referred to in, in, in Genesis. After that is Numbers chapter 13. After that is the entry to the land of Canaan. After that, Moses is present, and he's the one who writes the report in the book of Numbers. So whoever wrote Numbers was alive at the time, so he could put a little editorial comment in Genesis chapter 6 after that. Yes, it's an editorial comment. Whoever wrote Genesis chapter 6 had the original records, and then they insert a little comment that connects into Genesis chapter 6 across to Numbers 13, and the only person is Moses, trained under Pharaoh, an ambassador, trained under Pharaoh, educated in all the ways of Egypt, which includes writing in several languages, and he wrote Genesis, and he wrote Numbers, but Numbers is autobiographical. Genesis is compiled with editorial comments. So I think that deals with the question you've asked, Joseph. Great stuff. Thank you very much, John. Uh, Sam, any questions that come through? Uh, I can't really see any. Um, it doesn't appear that we've got anything that's sort of related to this sort of one. There's one. Uh, there's one yeah. that's coming from Neil Grindley. This one here. Double back. Do angels reproduce at all? Would be news to me. And there's this question as well, also from also from Neil, which is sort of uh, part of a question. Um, each kind only produces its own kind. Angels couldn't produce offspring with men, could they? Any comments, John? Uh, yes, you will find here is a, a linguistic difference between English and Hebrew. So when you look at Bereshef Barah Elohim, the first four words of the Bible, it's all about a God who is male gender, right? Notice gender and sex are in our minds the same thing, but gender and sex are two different things in the in the biblical Hebrew. So you'll find that angels, yes, yeah, sorry for all you ladies who have angels in nice dresses with bangles on. There are no female gender angels mentioned in the Bible. They are all described under the maleness of he. But this is not sex, right? Angels do not have male sex nor are they listed as Mr. and Mrs. Angel having all these little angels, right? That's fairy story. That's Mormonism. You will find that that is absolutely ignorant of the biblical picture of the difference between gender and sex. Now, we used to be this careful in English. Uh, they still are that careful in, in French. Some of you who studied French, I had to learn French at school, at high school. I had to revise it for visiting a French-speaking island in the Caribbean to do some research. I discovered that people who speak French don't think highly of English, so you had to really actually cotton on to what their version of French was. But French has, you remember La Chaise and Le Chaise, or is it the other way around? 
you know, because their thus are actually male or female gender. Chairs even have gender. Don't sit on the female chair. Or was it a male chair? La and Lur and English people get them horribly confused. We used to do that until the 1400s in English when we said, oh, forget it. Who cares if it's a boy chair or a girl chair? Because we started to get sex and gender all mixed up. And so us English, we dropped all that. So now it adds one more level of confusion, even with this. Diane, what do you think of the, the next question? About things reproducing after their kind. Well, that's certainly what we what the Bible says. It's certainly what we um, observe. Uh, there is a reference to the angels in heaven not marrying. Jesus himself said that. Um, so there, there's no indication in the Bible that angels ever produced any offspring. They were created beings uh, and they were eternal beings. So they came back centuries later. Remember the angel Michael, the angel Gabriel was still around in uh, New Testament times. Uh, so yes, there, there's nothing in the Bible that says they reproduce. Uh, why should they? They're spirit beings um, who are doing the work of God and there's nothing in the Bible that, um, that, that says that things can uh, multiply outside their own kind. And angels are definitely different kind to human beings, completely different kind. All right. Great stuff. Thank you very much for that. Um, I have just found out upon closer investigation that our monetization um, account has been frozen. Now, I will need to go and check out why that is and get it sorted out. So for the time being, we can't accept super chats. Uh, so if you would like to support mm. us, um, <laughs> if, if you are able to or can support us, then you will find there is a, a nice and easy link mm. in the description below. It's fairly near the top, and that will take you straight through to our um, website where you'll be able to donate safely and securely through various different means. So uh, we really do rely on the uh, on your support and everything else. So uh, if you're able to support, please do that, especially for our special birthday celebrations. But until we can get the monetization back up and running, which hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be able to do at some point, um, that'll be the only way to support us, other than, of course, liking and sharing the video. All right, let's move on to our final topic of this evening. Diane, we're over to you to talk about skin color and races. So uh, would you like your PowerPoint up and ready? Yes, yes, thank you. And, there uh, we go, it's all there. And over to you. Remember, any questions, keep them coming. Yes, well, we hear a lot in the news about uh, people of color Um and uh, there are lots of questions, you know, how many people of colour do are there in different professions, even in the scientific news, the uh, regular science news sites, you know, how many people of colour are there in physics? That was one that recently came out. Well, in fact, we are all people of colour, and some of you may remember a Sunday school song, um, Jesus Loves the Little Children, right, red and yellow, black and white. Uh, well, there are actually quite a lot of colours in human skin um, and there's red and yellow, uh, but uh, not black and white. So the colours in human skin, yes, there are red and yellow and there's 
two shades of brown. One is a very, very dark brown and one is a more reddish brown. But all people have all of these colours. So to understand how that all works, we need to have a brief look at how skin works. So here is uh, a piece of skin that has been cut down vertically and we're looking at the, uh, the cut surface. So at the top, we have the outside world and down the bottom, we have what's immediately under your, your um, skin, which is called the dermis. Now that is a, a mass of fibers and blood vessels. And in between the outside world and the um, dermis, you have the epidermis, which is the outermost layer, which is what uh, people see when they look at you. Now, the outermost layer of that is a layer called keratin. That is made by the cells in the epidermis. And the epidermis is very, very tightly bound to the dermis. And notice that the, um, the, the contours there, uh, contours give the epidermis and the dermis a very, very large surface area of connection. Uh, so it's very, very tightly bound. Uh, all very good design there. We, we can go into all of that in detail, but we're just looking at colour today. So let's have a look at the different colours. Red is actually the haemoglobin or the pigment that's in your red blood cells. So you can actually see that under your skin. That's why you look um, very dark red or very um, ruddy or flushed when you are hot or when you've been exercising and there's a lot of blood up close to the surface. The blood vessels can open and close. They don't close down completely, uh, otherwise the skin would die. But, uh, but there's always some blood flowing underneath the, um, underneath the epidermis in that dermis region where you've got a lot of blood vessels. So down in the dermis, in between, there's a sort of felt work of fibres, collagen fibres and elastic fibres. You have blood vessels running through there and you do actually see the uh, red from the red blood cells underneath that. And if there's a lot of blood, you look very red. And if there's not much, uh, you don't look so red, uh, depending on what other colours there are in between. So let's have a look at those. If we go right up the top, we actually find the yellow pigment, um, carotenoids. And uh, we eat some of these and they're quite tasty. Uh, they're found in foods and they tend to get concentrated in that outermost layer. So the easiest place you can see them is where you've got very, very thick calloused skin because you've got lots of keratin there. Uh, so uh, I don't suggest you do this now, but you can have a look at the sole of your foot and, uh, and you'll see there is a yellowish tinge there. So if we go back to our skin layers, um, the up in the keratin layer, you will get keratin, carotenoids um, accumulating. If you have lots of these, your skin looks more yellowish. If the skin is thicker, it looks more yellowish. So again, we've got variation coming in straight away. Now it's the epidermis that has the, um, the two shades of brown. So we need to have a look at those a little bit more closely. That's from a pigment named melanin, and there are two variants of that um, which rejoice in the names of eumelanin and pheomelanin. Don't worry about that. Just think of black, brown, and red, brown. 
And they are both made by melanocytes, which are specialist cells in the epidermis whose function is to just sit there and make melanin. And so the melanin is found in the epidermis in that bottom layer, right? See the, the curved layer where it connects with the dermis, the uh, melanin cells will sit in there and they make lots of melanin. Um, and they make it in various amounts. We'll explain that in a moment. Now, an interesting thing about melanocytes is that the number of cells, melanin-producing cells, is much the same for all of the racial groups. So whatever person of colour you are, if you looked at the average number of melanocytes for different coloured people, uh, it's much the same. So what makes the difference? Because there is quite a difference. All right. Now, here are some melanocytes, and notice where they are. They're in the bottom layer. That is because the function of melanin is to protect the cells that are dividing uh, in the epidermis. Epidermis is being constantly um, remade because it gets scraped off the top. Now, what happens is that cells in that bottom layer divide and some of the cells will then move up into the next layer towards the surface and they will start to fill up with keratin and they will move further and further up and fill up with keratin and various other substances that make the skin waterproof until they eventually flatten out and become like little flakes and then the uh, internal structure of the cell just dies off and so you're left with these keratin and, and waxy flakes. And the function of the melanin is to protect those dividing cells because when cells are dividing, the DNA is, uh, is vulnerable to uh, being uh, knocked about by various radiations and, and other things that, uh, that will affect DNA. So it needs to be protected from the external world. So the melanocytes specialize in making melanin, but they export it to the keratin cells. So it's inside the keratin cells, but as the keratin cells move up through the, the layers, um, eventually you don't need that melanin anymore. So it does get broken down, but in some people it persists. So that's another thing that will make a difference to the skin color. So it's the things that make a difference in the uh, color variation is for a start, how much of the eumelanin, the theomelanin, in other words, the, the very dark uh, blackish brown or the reddish brown, how much of each of those do the cells make? How active they are, how, you know, cells need to be stimulated, they need to be turned on to, uh, if they're a, a cell that produces substances for um, export, so how active they are, and then how much the melanin persists as you're forming these keratin layers. So there's a lot of scope for variation there. So if we combine all of those things, all people do have all of those colors and the different skin colors that we see from the outside are just variations of that same color combination. But because you've got four different colors, because you've got different levels of um, melanin activity and different thicknesses of the skin, uh, there's a big scope for a lot of different colors. So we're all persons of color. 
And how did we get the different colour combinations? Now, the standard theory is that it evolved according to the different environments that people lived in as uh, human beings um, evolved and then moved around over the earth. Well, does that check out? Well, we could, uh, we won't look that in, at, in real detail, but uh, one thing that is commonly told is that um, skin colour evolved because of changes in sunlight as you move around the earth. So we'll just have a brief look at this question. Has skin colour evolved for the sun? Because the melanin particularly is there to protect us from ultraviolet rays from the sun, which do damage our DNA if they can, if they can get there. So this is the standard story. Melanin protects the skin from damage from ultraviolet light from the sun. So dark skin evolved in the high ultraviolet regions, but skin does need some sunlight to make vitamin D, a really important vitamin. It's actually a, a hormone that um, has a, a lot of profound effects on um, our uh, calcium um, in our body. And uh, we all know that you need calcium to make strong bones. And also calcium is important in all sorts of other cellular functions as well. Uh, so you need vitamin D and it can be made in the skin with stimulation from some of the ultraviolet rays. So um, light skin is supposedly an evolutionary product of living in a low ultraviolet region. Well, we can look at that. Uh, now, ultraviolet light is going to be strongest near the equator, and it's going to sort of fade as you go away from the equator towards the pole, simply because of the uh, angle of the sun changing as the uh, sunlight goes through the atmosphere up towards the poles. It has to go through a thick, thicker layer. So the standard story is the regions near the equator plus some of the very high mountainous regions um, like the, the Deccan Plateau, like the Andes Mountains, um, there will be a lot of ultraviolet light, but it fades away as you get towards the uh, polar regions. Now, we can check that out by having a look at the colour distribution all over the world, but not these days. This is actually from old data because the world is so mobile at the moment um, and has been for the last few hundred years, right? We, we were stopped from being mobile for the last two years uh, because of the coronavirus restrictions, but that's just a, a blip in the, in the time. But um, this is a whole lot of data that was collected from what they call native populations. In other words, people who have supposedly lived in the same place and multiplied uh, for generations for uh, over thousands and thousands of years. Now, in the last couple of hundred years, people have moved about and there's been lots of mixing. And anyway, they um, this research came up with this data for the um, different distributions of skin color. Now, if you have a look at uh, Africa and Europe, it sort of works in terms of the, um, the dark and the light and the uh, relative distances away from the equator. 
But if you look at Australia and if you look at the Americas, it doesn't quite work, does it? So um, we need to do a sort of reality check, uh, as it were. What can we really explain the, um, the, the, the different colours are? Well, it doesn't really work with dark colour and light colour. If we just compare, say, Australia and Europe, now, you may think that, well, Australia is a tropical country. Well, the, the top half of Australia is certainly a tropical country. Uh, the bottom half is actually a temperate country. And uh, uh, it's uh, almost as far away from the equator as a lot of Europe. So if we put on our lines of latitude, you have the equator going through the center there. 40 degrees away from the equator, uh, goes through Bass Strait in Australia. It goes just below the mainland through and uh, just above uh, a small island uh, called Tasmania. And 40 degrees north goes through the Mediterranean region. So goes through Spain, through the Mediterranean region. So it's not that far away from all of those light people who live in Europe and uh, and up into uh, into Britain and Scandinavia, and uh, so how can we get our distinctive colour combinations? Well, let's have a look at biblical history rather than evolution and see if we have uh, a better explanation. Now we need to think the biblical history starts off with everything being very good, and one of the questions we have had is well. Uh, what was the original skin colour? What colour were Adam and Eve? Could we know that? I mean, obviously, we can't know it directly, but could we work it out? So we have to keep in mind, when everything was created, when God finished it, it was very good. And so we would see evidence of design. We would see well-designed skin. So what would be the best sort of skin to have? Well, in fact, it wouldn't be white and it wouldn't be black either. Um, and this is a mural we have at our Jurassic Ark site, if you can come and see that, as well as having wonderful fossils to dig up and or to see our display and wonderful gardens. We also have some murals that illustrate the real history of the world, and this is a beautiful mural that was made by our artist colleague, uh, Steve Cardinal, showing Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and quote from Genesis 1.31 there, and God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. And so what colour are Adam and Eve? Well, they would have the best skin there was. So they would have enough uh, pigment to uh, protect their DNA, but not too much that uh, it stopped them from producing vitamin D. So that would equate, uh, equate to a sort of... Um, middle light brown color uh, and a sort of soft rosy brown color and in fact most of the world's population are these days a sort of middle brown color black and white are actually minorities so we need to look at the history of the human race or the um the uh, human species right as uh John quoted earlier, this, uh, earlier, right, we all came from one man, as uh, quoting the Apostle Paul, 
we are all the descendants of one man and well one man and his wife who incidentally did come from him but uh, that's another interesting story we go into that some other time so we are the descendants of adam and eve and eventually you get to noah and his wife we mustn't leave out the wives and Noah and his wife, they had three sons, so we have Japheth and his wife, Shem and his wife, and Ham and his wife. And it's interesting, those names start to give us an indication that uh, skin colour might be starting to uh, break down a bit because between Adam and Eve and between Noah, of course, we've had the fall of man and the degeneration of man and by the time you get to Noah's time, yes, the world was very corrupt and God was grieved in his heart because of the corruption of human beings. But they have um, three sons who marry and in their names there is a, a hint of their uh, variations in colour. So Japheth has the sense of fair or light. Ham, that name... Uh, literally means sort of dark or burnt or, or sort of it means burnt which has the connotations of dark so we're having some variation in skin color already now those three sons and their wives after the flood they all had sons and daughters and um and gave rise to ge uh, several generations who eventually became the people of Babel and we do have the uh, genealogies there and the people of Babel eventually gave rise or, to all of the nations that we have on the earth so again going back to Genesis 32 which we referred to earlier from these right that's the descendants of Noah's three sons who uh, gave rise to the people of Babel who then gave rise to all of the people who are spread out all over the earth now, all of these nations or all of these people groups, and if you look up that Hebrew word that's translated nations, it can also be used to mean people groups. All of the people groups spread abroad all over the earth. And you can read in Genesis 10, there's a very, very careful uh, list of all of the people who were descended from um, Noah's three sons. So what we've got here is how do we get to uh, all of those different uh, skin colours that, that we have on the earth now? And it's part of that world going downhill. We've actually got degeneration of the gene pool. So the original creation, a sort of, middle brown color that was just right now there'd be a little bit of variation in that you can see that even within individual families these days who are all much the same color but there's just a little bit of variation but the original creation was very good so enough melanin to protect your skin from the ultraviolet light um, and but not too much to get in the way of making vitamin d by the time of noah and the sons you're starting to get a bigger spread, something is starting to go wrong, probably with the control genes that stimulate the melanocytes as to how much they make and whether they stay switched on all the time or whether they um, vary their, uh, their activity. 
by the time of Babel, after the flood, you've got a lot more degeneration happening after the flood. The environment has degenerated rapidly. Uh, we know that lifespans were going down. Um, there was disease and all sorts of things and a lot of mutation. So by the time of Babel, you've got a bigger spread. You've got uh, lots of variation in, in the colour. So what happened after that? Well, by the time of Babel, you will have all of this variation in colour. This is another mural uh, made by Steve Cardno. It's uh, that you can come and see at Jurassic Ark, showing you the real history of the real world uh, as recorded carefully by the people who were there or by God who was there and then the, the people who were there. And uh, so at the time of Babel, you would have had this variation, but the people were all together. Mixing was possible. After Babel, people were separated out. Now, we have the list of people who were separated out in Genesis 10. God would not have split up individual nuclear families, in fact, probably not even um, small groups of relatives. They were probably more like clan groups. So they would have shared the same sort of gene pool. Now, if you separate all of those into separate little clusters and they all then spread out and don't breed with one another, but just breed within their small group, you are going to get reinforcement of whatever genes they took with them from the uh, original gene pool at the uh, Tower of Babel. So we have separation, we have inbreeding for many generations before people started moving around the world and uh, remixing. And so these days we have a lot of remixing because people are very mobile all over the world and that's been going on for the last uh, couple of hundred years. So we've got lots of, lots of remixing now. And the fact that they can remix uh, reminds us, of course, that there's only one humankind, only one human species. There will be many of these different groups because um, you inherited whatever came from whatever your ancestors took with you out of the gene pool from the Tower of Babel. So this is everyone's history. We hear a lot about how we, we have to um, look at the history of uh, all these different sort of people groups. Well, yes, we should but we need to know what is the real history of all of those people groups because this is their heritage as much as it is ours. So if we can go back to, um, uh, back to us and, uh, and finish now. Th thanks, Joseph. Uh, all good. Thank you very much for that, Diane. That was great. Um, I think I've had a few more questions come through as well about uh, angels and about uh, race and all this kind of stuff. And then I think we'll finish up after some questions by just me and uh, John recapping one or two things about the political side mm -hmm. of stuff. And I think that'll wrap up our, uh, our birthday celebrations quite nicely. So, Sam, where are we with the questions? Okie dokie. Um, so we've had a few questions through. Um, it seems to be sort of more related to the angels question. Um, uh, okay, here we go. Uh, isn't Zechariah 5.9 a reference to female angels? 
Okay, uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. Have you got a Bible there, Joseph? Um, yeah, I think they put up the Bible. The, the, they put up the Bible yeah, reference in there as well. There we go. And I looked yeah, up, I looked and there up, were before me sorry, two yeah. women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Okay, it's certainly a vision. And uh, note the word angels is not used. All right, it's important to note where if the if it said and I saw before me two women angels, that would be okay. These women are described as having wind in their wings. It's just like the women who are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Um, they're not referred to as angels. So it's very interesting and uh, you can pursue it through in, in studying end times, but you could not prove a case that there are female angels mentioned in the Bible. Any other comments, Joseph? No, that was all I'd, I'd thought. There's, there's definitely uh, within visions many... Um, sort of women representations of women that i think we too often assume are angels because it's a heavenly vision right uh, and it references things that we associate with angels like wings um or so you know so, by the way so joseph can i make a comment if you find descriptions of angels none of them have wings in the Bible. exactly yeah 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 um you know the only the only sort of heavenly beings that have wings is the um is it the, the seraphs that use the wings to cover their their faces and their feet in the book of jeremiah uh so yeah there's there's there you've got to be very careful when you're when you're you know reading it, it's like everything it's like the, it's exactly the same with the the whole giants issue and with so much other stuff we've become kind of so used to biblical concepts in pop culture for want of a better word we are you know through whether it's sort of like old myths that have been passed into roman catholicism and then down to us through the sort of roman catholicism version of christianity whether it's uh, sort of myths and stuff that has hung around our culture or so on and so forth we tend to sort of associate pop culture and think oh well surely it must be in the bible you know surely it came from the bible and you'll find exactly as john said there's no reference to female angels uh no reference to the sort of winged beings that that, that you know the, the stereotypical angel that you put on top of your uh, on top of your christmas tree each year right um there isn't any evidence for this so really make sure that what you're using as evidence is a from scripture and also b explicitly and clearly is talking about the same thing not a vision that somebody had, not a description of, uh, uh, you know, a different spiritual being. If you're going to be using this talk of angels, then make sure scripture is really talking about angels and make sure you're really using scripture as opposed to a sort of third party information source. So that'd be pretty much my thoughts. Same as uh, same as you. Um, any other questions there, Sam? Um, we've had sort of like a tag on comment from Neil um, on your section, Diane um, said here uh, more a comment. My daughter-in-law's brother and his wife, both from Zambia, had a child born white only after a short time to their daughter dark into her parents dark brown. So is that sort of yes, is, that, is that quite um, common for children to yeah, sort that, of? That, that is quite common actually. That babies, when they're born, they're, they're a, a, a lighter colour than they will eventually be because um, when they uh, are exposed to the light, their um, 
their melanin cells become active and they and they change to the the color that their genetic potential has um it's just like babies most babies have blue eyes when they're born but not um but a lot of them then their their uh, eyes go brown um within a matter of weeks to, to months uh so that's uh, that's a normal change yeah uh diane my sister my older sister was born <clears throat> with one blue eye and one brown eye I have to take this for guaranteed from my parents who were there. I wasn't, of course, that uh, they eventually turned into two brown eyes. And uh, so I was always intrigued by this. So when I did genetics at Queensland University, I looked into it and I discovered that what you said is actually what happens. The majority of children, no matter what color their skin will turn out to be, are born with blue eyes. And if you look up, why do we have brown eyes? Well, as far as I can find out, the original eyes would have all been brown because people with brown eyes get the least amount of cancer in the eyeball. Uh, blue eyes are very weak by comparison because so much light gets through that they have cancer of the retina far greater than people with brown eyes. But if you're thinking in terms of baby's needs, inside the womb, there's plenty of womb for the baby, but no womb for the sunlight. It can't get in, right? So they have no need for brown eyes, no need for protection. They've already got several centimetres of mum surround them they're fully protected so no need for dark skin no need for dark eyes but shortly after they're born those dark changes do begin to take place if it is possible at all except for degenerate mutants like me where i never ever got brown eyes and most of my skin is just still spotty brown so i hate to say it but john mckay is a degenerate mutant of celtic extraction same as joseph um, you and me both mate yeah, so we're both tall. walking, walking uh, testimony of the downside of having yeah, blue eyes we were neither yeah. tall nor did we have brown eyes so yeah, no. yeah we both have blue eyes and it's sort of the, you know the amount of problems that are plagued with uh you know stuff like this and all got all manner of diseases and all sorts of stuff in the eye and so yeah it's um definitely not part of the original creation for sure <laughs> All right. Do we have any other questions? Uh, if uh, not, we'll that's finish it. up on... That's it, is it? All right. John, let's finish I'd up I'd like on... to thank the person who said the Australian birds were sounding very sweet. And, oh. uh, <laughs> well, there there are actually birds outside my windows, and we have to remember it's, it's actually the end of summer here, so I, mm. I do have the windows open. The birds were particularly active this morning. I didn't realise that my pathetic little microphone in, in my laptop computer could pick them up if, if that's what was being picked up. But anyway, yes, the, um, the birds in Australia have a bad reputation for sounding pretty terrible, and some of them do, but a lot of them do uh, sing sweetly. Just as well the kookaburras weren't laughing at you, Diane. It might have encouraged <laughs> disdain amongst our audience. Joseph, what's your question? Yeah, well, I thought to finish up, we ought to have a little bit of a chat, a little bit more on the um, sort of the biblical slash political side of things, right? Because something which keeps sort of rearing its head up over and over again is the Black Lives Matter, race, races in politics, and it's it's particularly prevalent in the USA. Now, you've travelled to the USA a lot more than I have. I've obviously got perspective of what it's like in the UK. You've got what it's like in Australia, which is much, much similar, right? Um, but can we have a, a little bit of a talk about sort of why 
race and why race and slavery is so intertwined in the USA. What are your thoughts from a political point of view? Okay. Having been, as you said, to the USA for many, many uh, trips, many, many ministry trips, having traveled around the South particularly, because our offices are just at the northern end of the South. So I got to see these, what you'd call racist treatments at uh, first up. So you'd enter a restaurant, and if there was a black servant in the restaurant delivering meals, he would be treated abusively, even by customers, and was very evidently scared to even comment on such abuse. And you look at that as an Australian, and us Australians are pretty, um, you know, we're pretty down-to-earth folks, and you almost feel like getting up and smashing someone for treating somebody else like that. In Australia, um, you know, I've worked a lot in areas where they're Aborigines, and I have never had any trouble working with Aborigines or vice versa. Uh, I grew up in a world where you saw the last of European um, treatment of other races or other religions. So we had a Catholic family near us and they had a fence that was sort of seven feet, two and a half meters high nearly, and there was a good reason for it. Every one of us, because most people in our district were Protestant, at least ethnically, rather than going to church or anything, we would hoist big stones over that fence. If you hit someone, that was just the way it was. The Catholics would walk down one street, the Protestants allegedly, the state school kids versus the church school kids, and we had a separated society. But even then, we'd forgotten what the reasons for this difference was, and it progressively died. There's still traces of it in some parts, uh, but in terms of living in the country where many of the people are Aboriginals or dark-skinned, you may have differences in culture, and you get used to that. But by and large, we have a lot less racism than what I found in the USA. Okay, going to the USA, it was very evident it was still there in the 1980s and the 1990s, and by the way, it's still in many places. Uh, going back to what causes it, yes, black versus white is the superficial reason, but why are black people regarded in one manner and white people regarded in another? The answer has nothing to do with Charles Darwin, despite the fact that there are American creationist groups that like to blame Darwin for racism. It has no connection to the racism historically in the USA. You'll find many of the slavery issues have no connection to what you and I would call Charles Darwin because the races and the slavery issues were all there before uh, Darwin came along with his theory. Okay, what you do find is it's basically inspired by an incorrect view of the Bible that says the curse of Ham was a curse on black people. Now, if you know your Bible, Noah gets off the ark. His three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, are there. Ham does something to his father. He's alone with him. At the worst, it's a sexual maltreatment. Noah is drunk, the first drunk recorded in the Bible, and Ham... Uh, does something that's implied to be either sexual at worst or just mockery at the very best. Either way, that you then get a thing called the curse of Ham. But if you read that curse, that statement that Noah, the father, makes on his son, he does not make it on Ham. He curses Canaan. He said, cursed will be Canaan. He will become a servant to his brothers. Now, Ham, Ham, as Diane said, is definitely Hebrew for dark. 
It's by word association, the Hamites, no doubt about it. That's why they call themselves in Egypt. Egypt is hot, ham and heat, ham and dark, ham and dark skin to survive are all connected. So hence the connotation ham is dark. So people read this and say, God put a curse on ham. Well, Noah actually put a curse on Canaan. And the curse on Canaan was that he would become a servant to his brothers. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with the people from Africa being taken as slaves across to the USA and being forced into lifetime servitude until you get the liberations after the Civil War. What it's got to do is the people who are descended from Canaan, the Canaanites, becoming servants to their brothers because Ham, Shem and Japheth are all related. So those who descended from Shem become the Israelites. Those descended from Ham, some of them become the Canaanites. And you'll find the Canaanites are in Canaan. That's where it gets its name from when the people of Israel reinvade. And then you get that famous story about the Canaanites realizing one group of them, hey, these Israelites are going to beat us up. So we'll trick them. We'll dress in old clothes. We'll get an old moldy bag. We'll get a bag of dried bread. And we'll come to them and say, we've come from a long way away. Please be merciful. Let's make a, a deal with you. Let's make a, a covenant. So the Israelites get tricked. Instead of asking God, who are these people? They go ahead and sign a deal saying, we will not put you to death. Because that was God's instruction. Yes, God alone has the right to ask you to do that and to make that decision. Why? The Canaanites were perverted people. They were being put to death for their sexual immorality that they taught even their children. Okay, so the Canaanites trick Joshua and all the others. And when it's found out, Joshua and the others say, from now on, you will be our servants. The curse of Canaan was fulfilled the moment that happened. Now, it's got nothing to do with the slaves from Africa going to South America or to, to the USA. Now, hence, when you're going to blame anybody for the racism and for the slavery in the USA, you need to blame incorrect biblical exegesis, largely coming through Reformed, Baptist and Puritan circles. It is a biblical misinterpretation, not a biological one based on Charles Darwin at all. And secondly, it's only solution. Now, I've preached in black churches. They are way more enthusiastic than most vibrant charismatics I know of. Of course, it's hard to get their attention a lot because they think differently, they act differently, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. You just modify your, your preaching method, not your content, your preaching method. So your hallelujahs and praise the Lord, brother, uh, are in the right places. But the only solution is that we become one in Christ. So I saw a great... Um, Mimo on the web today saying, here's my Turkish brother and I, and he's over there on the edge of uh, the, the chaos in, in, in Ukraine and saying we have become one in Christ. Now, Turks, the Islamic people and the Orthodox don't normally get on at all. But when you are one in Christ, who is the father of all mankind and particularly of those who become saved, Boy, does that bring peace to the situation. So stop blaming Charles Darwin for racism and slavery in the USA. Start blaming the people who need to be blamed, and that is many of the incorrect theologians. Absolutely. I think one of the, my favourite sayings from you, John, is that, you know, 
when you're dealing with this issue of, of racism, the solution has to be greater than the issues without actually denying the differences that really do exist. So you're just going down the line of saying, oh, well, we're all one race, so we should all get together uh, or get along with each other. Not only denies the fact that there are many races, it's a biological term, right? It's a very real term. We've dealt with that many times here on the program, but it also denies the very real differences that are that are there between people both cultural ethnically physical and there are we're all descended from adam there's no doubt about it but the tower of babel has a big thing to play here and diane spoken about that earlier and the separate people groups being spread out into all the world and so there are going to be issues there are going to be problems the thing that causes us to overcome them and brings us back together is jesus christ who's greater than all of the differences and all of the problems without actually denying that they that they exist. I mean, to give you a little bit, because, you know, again, I've been to, to the States and I've, not as much as you have, but I have experienced um, racism between you know, sort of the, the white people and the black people, and even just in the terms that are, that are used and in the way that it's kind of, you know, it's still looked down upon uh, a lot more now than it was probably when you first started going over to the States, John. But to give you a little bit of a, a perspective, you know, here in the UK, it's been... Uh, it was never the same kind of dynamic that you that you had over in the states even to the point of you know during the second world war when uh black soldiers black american soldiers were coming over to the uk to help fight right and segregation was still a, a big thing in the states of course even up until to the 60s and you ended up in a position in the uk where the white american soldiers were mortified that the white you british fathers would let their white british daughters dance with the black american soldiers because of course here in the uk we'd been you know it had been happening for years there was never such a thing really as segregation even in the height of slavery there was not the same kind of segregation stuff that we have you have in, in in the states and you know our history goes back a, a, a very long way in terms of the abolition of slavery so 1787 you had lord chief justice manfield who issued a bill against the slave insurance ending the zong case now the zong case is interesting because you had the ship the zong right a slave merchant ship who was sailing from africa and was sailing over um to to the to the new world to the americas right and they deliberately threw they chained the slaves together and deliberately threw them off the off the uh, the boat they drowned because they were chained together in order to claim back on insurance right now they were just viewed as property so he claim insurance from them. Well, Lord Chief, Chief Justice Mansfield, what he did is he issued a bill against the slave insurance, meaning that slaves could no longer be insured. Now, this was important because it meant that legally slaves, slaves were no longer viewed as property. Now, that was a huge step towards the abolition of slavery because not only did it give uh, slaves protections, it actually gave slave rights, um, which was, was never something that, that was considered before. 1804, of course, William Wilberforce passed the anti-slavery uh, bill. In 1883, um, Britain passed the bill abolishing slavery and placed 40% of its national budget into freeing slaves, right, which is the equivalent of about $12 billion in today's money. So this threw Britain into national debt, which we were still paying off until 2015, right? So my parents and grandparents and all the way back, their taxes helped pay off the slaves. So we have a very, very long history, and it's something that's very, very different to 
uh, what's going on in America. But can we just talk, John? Because I know we've we've spoken uh, about this before, and something that that that's really really key because the the term slave goes back to the slav people who were often sort of caught and treated as slaves as as property and stuff but slavery existed all over the world still exists today uh, in the form of human trafficking and stuff like that but the key thing is who was actually doing the selling of slaves from uh, from africa because you sort of hear this sort of colonialism and you kind of envisage the white man marching into the jungles and capturing slaves and marching them off but from from your perspective because you've done a lot of in-depth look into history what was actually going on with this sort of transatlantic slave type of stuff okay we'll make this my last comment because as some of you know my wife has been ill i do have to go down and just double check on her shortly but uh if you think of the historic slavery in the bible even Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. This is Jewish people selling Jewish people to a dark race, right? The, the, the Hamite people were in Egypt. And so it was dark races in charge and white people who ultimately were enslaved by the pharaohs, right? So the Jewish people became slaves. And that's the whole reason for the Exodus account. In a similar way, you'll find if you read the first book, on slavery by the first bishop of Africa, a black man, right? He freely admits that we sold our brothers to the slavers. Uh, the slavers didn't have to raid inland and get the slaves. They went inland to buy them and they bought them off black bullies. Uh, and the black bullies were quite happy to sell their black brothers uh, into slavery. It's one reason why the, the famous difference between Europeans and, and black people, you know, white men can't jump, white men can't run. And there's a lot of truth in this because if you did survive in the early days of Africa, it's because you could run faster than the black brothers who are trying to catch you. You could jump higher than they could. So there is a biological natural selection process there, but you do need to own up to the fact that it's not the Europeans who invented the slavery. They simply saw it as a piece of trading. And of course, the most famous example is when Jesus got hold of John Newton and you end up putting slavery right out of his heart because he'd become a slave of the only one who does own us, and that's God. So, um, you know, the, the whole history of Newton and grace uh, is, is wonderful. So I'd recommend you read up the books by the African bishops as well as John Newton's life story. Great stuff. Well, I think we should uh, leave it there. We've gone on a little bit longer than normal, but I think that's still pretty good. Uh, thank you all those who are still sticking with us. We've got a good number watching even now, so thank you very much. Remember, our monetization is down for some reason. We will work, try and sort that out, but if you can support us, we will really, really appreciate it. You'll find links to donate from all over the world nice and securely in the description below, as well as loads of other stuff in the description. So here we go. One year on, and we're, we're going stronger than ever, so continue to support us if you can like share all that kind of stuff and keep on supporting us so we can carry on bringing this content to you on a weekly basis any last words from anybody to sort of final thoughts or to close up i want i want sam to pop one of those balloons you, you're going to eat the cake i need to see a balloon pop can you pop those balloons um, okay. let's go, let's go before you just said um 
there are a couple of questions on race and uh, and one on slavery on the Ask John Mackay site. In fact, one of our perennially popular questions is uh, what race was Noah? Uh, but there is also a question about race and slavery um, and questions about skin colour that you can look up on the fact file as well. So do have a look at those things to uh, fill in some of the details of what we've done fairly briefly tonight. Come on, Sam, go out. I'll try. I'll, I'll try. Uh, I can't guarantee <laughs> any results. Uh, here we go. Hey. Well done. Well done. Hey. Goodbye. Goodbye, all. Catch you later. We will. We will see you soon. Join us next week for Creation Conversation.